All of the opinions expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not intended to offend or disrespect any of the parties involved. We're just two people who know how to research stuff on Google, then talk about it. We don't have any legal education and therefore shouldn't be taken too seriously. So don't try to sue us. We couldn't afford to pay you anyway. Additionally, this podcast is about murder and will probably contain many other adult themes. So if that's not your thing, you're probably going to have a bad time. So listen at your own risk. Welcome back to Allegedly. This is the part of the show where I say the intro. I insert a witty line here, followed by a joke. Now it's Mike's turn to say something that only he thinks is funny. Say something, Mike. I'm definitely the funnier of the two. And I'm Heather. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. That is the best intro we've had. That is the worst (laughs) intro we've done. Now we know the theme of our next poll. Oh, Well, I'm Mike, since I didn't even have an opportunity to say it. No one cares. I'm still Heather. And this week, we are covering arguably the most famous unsolved murder in U.S. history, the Black Dahlia. And like I told you when I picked this one, this case is what got me into true crime when I was a teenager. Yeah, weirdly enough, I've always had an interest in true crime, obviously, but not in this case particularly i don't know why i mean i guess the details of her death were interesting well and as a teenager i think that's what grabbed me because i wasn't doing it for the same reason that we research true crime now on a non-stop basis yeah it just like grabs your attention like the the way that she died and then the whole media circus around the whole thing and Mm -hmm. the fact that it has to this day not been solved this is an open Well, I also think that has a lot to do with it because typically I just get bothered or annoyed with cases that are unsolved. Well, you were bothered and annoyed with this case because when we we went for our normal Mexican dinner before we got here to record on this one, you were talking, you know, and even today when we were kind of texting back and forth, we were both kind of frustrated that again, we're sitting down to do this tonight and we're not really 100% sold. And we're probably going to make up our minds while this is going Maybe. back and forth. My mind is made up. I've decided. At this yeah, moment. but you're not 100% sold on it. I'm so you're going to be stubborn oh, and dig no, no, your no. heels in. Oh, no, no, no. I'm 100% sold now. Because I just said this live on the air and you want to contradict no, me? No, actually, I was... Remember when I said I forgot to write notes on a certain someone? Mm-hmm. And then I made my decision. Because it's not the person you didn't write the notes on? No. You'll oh. see. Oh. All right. All right, well then, there's a lot to unpack here. There are several suspects for us to discuss. Yeah, Only two that we're really going to go super in-depth with. Yep. So let's dive in. Shall we start? Okay. I guess that's my cue. That was your cue. And again, smoothest transitions in podcasting on this show. Professional church painting about to commence. (laughs) Let me tell you a tale. Getting comfy. All right. On the morning. I'll I'll stop. On the morning. (laughs) So on the morning of January 15th, 1947, a woman by the name of Betty Bursinger was walking along South Norton Avenue with her three-year-old daughter when she happened upon a mannequin laying in a vacant lot. Dun, dun, dun. I'll give you three guesses as to what it really was. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're listening to this and don't already know. <laughs> yeah. 
Hi. (laughs) As she approached, the terrifying reality became instantly clear. The mannequin was, in fact, a human woman. No way. Yep. I'll give you three guesses as to who it was. (laughs) The Lindbergh baby? No, but we do need to cover that case. (laughs) No, actually, so it was a human woman. She was nude, mutilated, and most notably to Betty, at least, absolutely pale white. Something that she just repeated over and over again. And she was cut in half. So Betty quickly picked up her kid and, as Mike likes to say, yeeted right out of there. Uh, she called the police and, to my knowledge, didn't return to the crime scene. I mean, obviously, you don't bring your three-year-old back to a crime scene. Although I probably would have found a sitter. Because let me tell you, if I ever happen upon a dead body, I'll be like, halt my day. Well, I know. I'm- I'm, I was just saying this to... I said it to you and I've said it to people at work and some other friends. And yes, I have those before you insert your smart comment there. But You said it bef- while I was drinking and it wasn't <laughs> fair. <laughs> So it's a little scary to me how nonchalant I am now with the type of stuff that we talk about on this show all the time. Like I'm just nonchalantly taking notes about a woman being bisected at the waist. We didn't get to that detail yet. You already said she was cut in half. How do you know which way? Oh my God, you're spoiling the show for everyone. You think they're going to cut... Vertically, I don't know. It's a surprise. It's the Black Dahlia case. We came into this knowing that everyone's going to have some knowledge on this one. We'll see. And I think that that's going to be if Mike something spoiled the surprise for you. Comment below. Anyway, especially with this case because it's gruesome. Yeah. And I mean, and I'm saying that after we've already covered Armin Maivez, which we've gotten feedback from yeah. listeners that <laughs> it was difficult for them to By listen feedback, to. By feedback, we mean the lowest listened to one, which I thought was the most interesting, which tells you where yeah. I lie on the spectrum. That tells you how in sync you are with our audience. No, but we even got like specific comments Yeah, on being like, that was hard that to get through. Yeah, like, oh, I really liked this episode and it's super interesting, but it's very disturbing and it was very hard <laughs> to listen to. You're welcome. You know, but with this one, it's gruesome. Oh, yeah. There are some really disturbing details. There's some I'm, disturbing details with the suspects, too. Well, and I, but is... I'm just like nonchalantly leaning on my kitchen counter, taking notes on this. And yeah. Sam was there with me. And I was like, this is disturbing that this doesn't bother me at all. And I can carry a normal conversation with you while I'm writing these Oh, you mean like how when we arrived in the Mexican restaurant this evening and you said, <laughs> let's get that table in the back so that way we can talk about this murder while we eat and no one will stare at us. Yeah, you said, mean like that? <laughs> I said, there's no one around this table. We're far enough away that we can talk about yeah. bisecting someone at the waist. All right, so... Right, shall we return? So she finds the mannequin that's not a mannequin. No, it's a body. She's already called the police. We passed all that. I know. I was just back trying to, to get story. us back in. You don't have the same storytelling effect that I do. That's one back way to put to that. Back to South Norton Avenue. Right, so yeah, she yeeted out of there. She didn't come back because she's not going to bring her three-year-old back to a murder, I guess. But soon the investigators arrive, reporters and passersby all crowded around who would soon become the famous Black Dahlia. I guess the main question is, who was the Black Dahlia? Do you want me to answer that for you? I mean, I have her name right here. No, this is my part. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) Well, mainly who was she and how in the world did she end up the way she ended up. And there are more details to come because it's worse than what I've already described. But let's take it back 
Well, and this, just really quickly, like, this is kind of a prime example of why we have always started our episodes talking about the victim first. Yep. Because what do people really know about the Black Dahlia? Yeah. And they know some of these gruesome details mm-hmm. about her death, and they know about this whole media circus around it. Well, and, and as you'll come to find, the updated sort of media circus around this is mostly focused on someone else. Yeah. A suspect, rather than her so also before i jump into who the black dahlia was uh, this isn't a disclaimer of sorts as far as the type of content it's going to be gruesome we've already said that but i do want to say that this case is so old but it has been so highly highly publicized that what we're about to tell you is we're going to lay out the case to you in the best way that we could with the research that we were able to do but keep in mind there are hundreds if not thousands of sources that all contradict each other so we're going to do the best that we can if there's something small that we miss or something like that it might be because it's omitted because we can't prove it and we don't want to give false information yeah we tried very carefully and we talked about this ahead of time you know as we've said multiple times on the show We try not to talk about these cases ahead of time because we want this to really be our conversation and to be able to naturally react to the things that we're saying. But we did talk about the fact that there is a lot of rumors and speculation. (laughs) So we're going to give details, but it's not going to be all of the details that you could find by just Googling because we were trying to make sure that there's something backing up the things that we're saying Mm because we don't want to be part of spreading some of the misinformation and gossip that's out there yep. in regard to this case. And that's not to say that perhaps maybe the source that we trusted was 100% correct either. So we're going to try our best. Right. Uh, when we get to the theory portion and suspect portion is when we'll start to go maybe a little off of opinion and not necessarily concrete fact. So, Well, I think that's what they're tuning in for. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to a happier time, 22 years earlier. So Elizabeth... Not Anne Short. We're coming across on the day of her birth already. The very first myth is that she has a middle name. She does not. Yeah, it's it's baffling to me. Just some of the things yeah. that are kind of... They're already accepted. They're just yeah. out there. Well, because it's and unusual for someone not to have one, at least in our country. My so. mother does not have a middle name. My grandmother also did not enough. have a middle name. Yeah. Shout so. out to my mom who listens to this podcast every week. Hey, Marie. <laughs> so, Elizabeth, no middle name, short, was born on July 29th of 1924 in Boston, Massachusetts. She spent her early childhood, however, in Medford, Massachusetts. Uh, her father was Cleo and her mother was Phoebe May. She was the third born out of five girls. Yes, right in the middle. So a house I would not want to live in. because Middle oh child, God. just like me, so I understand the struggle. <laughs> So her, there's not really too much on like her mother and really honestly not too much on her father either, but her father made a decent living building miniature golf courses, like mini golf. What a cool job. Yeah, pretty cool. And unfortunately though, they're living in a time when the Great Depression hits in 1929. Yeah, it's looming. Yeah. Elizabeth, at just five years old, some debate six years old, but at just five years old, in the height of the Depression, her father, Cleo, drives his car to the Charleston Bridge and jumps to his death in the Charles River. 
And his body was never found. Yeah, just leaves the car parked right there on the side of the road. Yep, just yeets, the, yeets right out of there. Yeets right off the bridge. That's our drinking word this week, yeah. yeets. <laughs> How many times can we squeeze the word yeets into the Black Dahlia right? case? So Phoebe packs up her five daughters and moves them into a small apartment where she took to bookkeeping to keep them afloat, to try to try to maintain some semblance of normalcy, I guess. So Elizabeth, I guess, had a fairly other than her father jumping off of the bridge, had a fairly normal childhood. However, she was plagued with asthma and bronchitis, and it became so severe that at the age of 15, she'd have to have surgery on her lungs, which sucks. So doctors had suggested, because her case was so bad, that she actually spend time in a better climate. So at that point in time, she began spending the winters in Florida. Uh, Some sources say that she actually moved there. The best that I could find is to say that she did, in fact, still maintain residence in Medford, Massachusetts, but went there during the colder season so it wouldn't bother her. Yeah, so again, what what seems like a minor detail about her life that... That misinformation seems to be out there because really the only thing we could find consistently was seasonally being in Florida because of her medical condition. Mm Mm-hmm. And but a well, lot there's of also another about, Florida comes back into play. Well, yeah, but a lot of people talk about her childhood being split between Massachusetts and Florida. Yeah, which is not, the and case. that's really not the case. She was no. only there. It was part-time, as she got a little yeah. bit older. And mm-hmm. it was very, very part time yep. seasonally. So by all accounts, she was a really nice, kind, friendly young woman. All of the accounts that I've read from people that knew her at this point in time all seem to agree that she was just a mild-mannered, friendly girl. So three years later, however, she is 18 years old, and she's in Florida at the time when this happens, but Phoebe, her mother, receives a letter from Cleo. The dead dad. From the grave. Actually, not from the grave, from California. (laughs) So Cleo just parked his car at this bridge and walked away. Yeah, faked his own suicide to abandon the family. And get this. He, in this letter, he asks Phoebe to take him back. Like, what? <laughs> and she said, she, you yeeted, stay yeeted. Pretty much. Double because shot. <laughs> she's had to like, she had to become a bookkeeper and move from a nice home to an apartment and raise these five girls. And basically this man being like, yo, you guys were way too much for me to handle, but can I come back? Sure. Just sure, why like not? every toxic man out there. There isn't a mini golf in this world that would make me take someone back like that. (laughs) I'm just saying. So basically, yeah, he says, hey, I'm so sorry. I'm not really dead. I'm alive and well in California. I got myself together and I want you back. Phoebe says, no, we already went through that. No, there's no more detail. That's that's some strength. That's (laughs) some female empowerment right there. (laughs) She was like, I will take my five daughters and be alone. (laughs) But this, and this is where it's going to spark another piece of information that's highly debated is elizabeth gets wind of her father actually being alive and phoebe phoebe elizabeth who actually we should call betty that was her name everybody called her betty betty finds out that her dad is alive and that he's living in california the land of the movie stars and a lot of people say that elizabeth short so betty was a wannabe actress that was her dream in life and that's why she was in la to begin with you and me both sister yeah (laughs) 
I guess this is the part where I'm going to have to put in a little opinion on this just because there are absolutely no concrete facts to say whether or not this is what she wanted because unless we spoke to her, we would never know. Right. And there's, I mean, there are a lot of people who say that that's why. But I think a lot of people have that dream. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's part of the reasoning to go to California, but there's no evidence supporting that that was actually something she was pursuing. You know, because they say yeah. aspiring actress, and that, I think to most people, at least to me, would imply that she was actively trying to do that. Right. But there's no proof that she's gone no. on auditions. No she cast had no calls, film no credits. Nothing, yeah. So that's just the thing. There's no evidence that she actually had put any effort into it. That's not to say, though, especially during that time, that it's not exciting or intriguing and like, oh, I'm going to go live in the land of the movie stars and pursue something myself or make it big. Or it seems from the kind of life she was living, L.A. to her, her father actually lived in Vallejo, but still California, it, it seemed like a a better or more exciting life, I would imagine. And, and that's my opinion, is that at least in that time. Well, and again, I feel like most people would feel that way. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily think that there's any malintent in yeah. that misinformation being out there, but there's really just nothing to support that she mm-hmm. was really actively working towards yeah. that. And that that was the sole reason that she went to go mm-hmm. live with her father. I mean, think about it. You're at five years old. As far as you know, your father has committed suicide, gone forever. Right. And then at 18, he reaches out to your mother. She shares that information with you. I think it's kind of a natural Mm -hmm. want to then try to build some type of relationship with your father. Yeah. That when that opportunity presents itself, no matter how twisted that whole story is. Yeah. And and also, I really still think that L.A. and most notably New York City still holds that wonder for a lot of people yeah just that's the place where you go to try to pursue something like that it's just one of those things i wouldn't fault her for that and i know like probably if you're listening it kind of seems like well what's the big deal who really cares why is that even something that would be debated it i think it's just because of the way the media uses some of these pieces of information that oh she was a a failed actress or oh she was trying to become a hollywood starlet and that kind of sensationalizes it and right. it just wasn't that big well, of a and in, thing. In the context and the way that they were sensationalizing it was to make it seem like she was exposing herself to something that could be dangerous. Yeah, but if I have to give my full opinion, her mother was a single mother raising five girls. And not only was it California and a dad she'd never seen, but he's back on his feet, has a decent job. She could have a home with just him and not have to share it with, you know, five other women. So I also think that that's pretty appealing as well. I'm not saying that she was shallow or anything like that, but to just have a better upbringing also seems pretty, like, I don't know. But I think all of that is to say we don't really buy that her main reason no. for moving across the country May have been one of them. Right. Or part of the the intrigue, yeah. But the main reason for doing that, it doesn't seem like that's the case. No. Because if you do that and you move that far away from the family that you know, even for another family member, Mm -hmm. you're going to be actively pursuing it and there would be some, there'd be some proof, there'd be some evidence out there that you were doing that. You know, we talked about in an earlier episode that I had left where we are now in this rural part of florida Mm -hmm. and i had gone back to north jersey 
And a big part of the reason for me doing that was that I was trying to chase that kind of a dream. Mm-hmm. And I... But you have a background in that. You've had a background in that your whole life. Right, but I looked your for... Your father does that kind of thing. It like goes like way back. But I looked for auditions. I reached well, yeah. out to directors and producers. And, you know, there's, there's emails and there's, you know, sign-in sheets and things that would be evidence that I was pursuing that kind of thing. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So just if that were what she moved there for, mm-hmm. wouldn't we have something? Wouldn't we have her signing in at an audition? I, I mean, yeah. Something, but there's there really isn't anything other than I do believe she wrote a letter to her mother saying that she was wanting to be a fashion model. Again, I haven't seen the letter. That's just another kind of well, and I saw that in a couple of places that there was something yeah. about modeling. Which that's also not to say that she moved to California and that is what piqued her interest. Right. When you're around those kind of people, you kind of you know you want to fit into that lifestyle. So there's that. But anyway, regardless of her reasoning, she moved with her father in Vallejo, California, and basically on the assumption that she would be keeping up with the housework in exchange for room and board. So cleaning, cooking, just kind of taking care of him, I guess. Yeah, because the indications, or at least what I kind of inferred from it, is that he's single at this point. He yeah. hasn't remarried. He's not. Well, no, I mean, he's asking Phoebe back. I would sure hope he wasn't married. Well, not to say we already talked be. about what a toxic man this guy is for well, faking yeah. his own suicide to abandon them. But <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like um, listen. Yeah, he, wanted... he has lines. He'll fake his death, but cheating. <laughs> no. So he. Well, I mean, that's really like going to the extreme to avoid <laughs> cheating, isn't it? Right. Yeah. So he really wanted someone to be domestic. For him, yeah. so that he didn't have to do those yeah. types of things, it mm-hmm. seems like. But that wasn't what Betty wanted. So, no, by all accounts, that is not at all the type of woman that Betty was. No, at all. And not that that's a bad thing. I would say there are many, many women who don't want to be a housewife, and there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with a woman wanting to be a housewife. That's right. You do fine. you, Betty. Yeah. And we'll get into even more of it. Again, we have to remember that this is the 1940s, and how people feel about domestic life and women is much different now. Well, and I think that was part of what I was yeah. trying to get across yeah, to like when a, I talked about like the media, the way that they yeah, exactly. contextualized like, this. Oh, she didn't want to stay home and be a housewife. Oh, well, she wanted oh. to be a star. Like, oh God. Like, seriously, they just don't cut this woman any slack, I'm telling <laughs> you. Right. And mind you, she's 18, 19 years old. Like, of course she doesn't want to stay home and clean the house. Right. You know, I'm 31 now. I don't want to stay home and clean my house. Look at it. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously. Look at all the selfies we take before we record. Heather's always so worried. Oh, people are going to see this. (laughs) So, yeah, she was supposed to cook clean in exchange for room and board. And she and her father butt heads. And she moves. Well, she gets kicked out. Yeah, I was going to say moves out would be very generous. He kicks her out within months. So now this is either in, it could be at any point in time between January of 1943 to July of 1943. At any point in time there, she's been kicked out of her house and is kind of like couch surfing. Yeah. And at this point in time is another, I'm telling you, this case is just riddled with just things that are blown way out of proportion. Mm -hmm. In September of 1943, she is arrested. Guess what the crime is for? Is it something terrible? Did, want, she, you asking, did she murder somebody? Are you asking me to guess? Like, I don't have yeah. this in my notes right <laughs> no, now. I mean, like, <laughs> she. do you think maybe she murdered somebody, got into a bad accident? Was it, I mean, no. 
underage drinking. So her famous portrait that is everywhere is, is her, her mugshot. Mug for underage drinking at the age of 19. Like, are you are you kidding me? But this is what it makes her look like. So it's leaked. But then the media just runs with it and they're plastering mm-hmm. it everywhere. And so again, they're just using these things to contextualize this lifestyle yes. she supposedly had. Yeah, so let's keep a tally here. So this is what makes her a terrible person. She didn't want to do housework. Ugh, bad. She had a beer under the age of 21. Terrible. Let's just keep this momentum up. How did anyone let her live? I know. To be 22 years old. (laughs) That she might have wanted to be a star, didn't want to clean her father's house and take care of him, and had a drink before she turned 21. Exactly. What a terrible human, right? Okay. So this terrible woman moves (laughs) back to Florida because... Someone's going to splice out us calling Elizabeth Short (laughs) a terrible woman. So she... Moves from Vallejo to Florida. And this is an actual move. So I think maybe that's where things kind of get confused in the timeline. She actually does move back to Florida where she has a fairly happy part of her life. And she meets a man there named Matthew Michael Gordon. And he was a major in the, well, it's Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr. It's a long name. He's an Army Air Force officer. And they Yeah, you almost just gave him a promotion. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know anything about those kinds of things. So well, major whatever. is much higher than naval officer, yeah, air but, force officer. But it, he's his, it's called major, major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr., Army Air Force officer. But is major part like is that his name? It said major, yeah. But I'm saying is his name major? No, major comes before his. Who would name their child major? Plenty of people. You know what? You are a major pain in my word that we don't say on this podcast. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, by all accounts, their relationship was a a pretty good one. She had a relationship with his mother. They exchanged a lot of letters. He proposed to her, I think through a letter, because he was deployed. We're talking about World War II at this point. And so this is in... So the very opposite of a Dear John letter. Yes, this is in 1946. And as we all know, that's when World War II ended, which makes this really tragic. So he had gotten into some type of accident and was ill, and that's when he had sent her this letter. Not ill, but he was recovering. Sent her this letter saying, when I come back, I want to get married. So they were engaged. She was all excited. She kept a hope chest with all of his things. And the day before he is to return home, a week prior to Japan surrendering, he dies in a plane crash. Like... Are you this this poor girl? I mean, poor Major Matthew. Right. But, but yeah, I let's mean, for sure talk about how sad like, it is that a serviceman. Yeah, on his way, but on his way home. Right. I mean, that's horrific. That's. I mean, I just feel so bad for both of them because, I mean, it looks like she was actually going to maybe have a, a happily ever after, and as we know, that that's not what happened. So. There are also uh, fuzzy details on that as well, but they're not pertinent to this, and they're not really, those parts aren't really dragged through the mud, so I'll kind of skip over that. But she was engaged, and there are kinds of bits and pieces, though, that she maybe has lied or embellished on her relationship with certain people, which we'll touch on when we get to the suspects, maybe. So anyway, she comes back to Los Angeles, and she meets up with another ex-boyfriend of hers, Gordon Fickling. And that's pretty much the end of her, after they break up, the end of her kind of relationships. Like, I guess, 
yeah, relationships is the word I'm going to use here. Because after that, they call it dating for dinner. And Betty, at this point, doesn't have a stable home. She doesn't have a set address. And this is one of the biggest pieces of this case is that she dated for dinner. And that basically means that she would go out with men just so she'd have a hot meal to eat. And she had a lot of suitors, a lot of gentlemen callers, and she had her fun. There's no doubt. And there are rumors that she got into sex work and that kind of thing. And that's pretty much been debunked. However, I guess if she exchanged any type of services for eating or going out or having a good time, I mean... I feel like women do that all the time but now. I we also, have Twitter or Tinder. I, not Twitter. <laughs> Tinder. <laughs> yeah, all of you. I don't use any of those, so all I don't know how they work. All <laughs> singles using Twitter. But no. Um. <laughs> so old. I'm so old. <laughs> but to me, I think this is just, again, this kind of falls victim to the culture at the time. Yes. Where, like, we wouldn't... I don't think that we see anything wrong with that. To, I mean, I get there are always people that want to find fault with things, but... In general, I don't think we see any issue with people in general, women or men. No. Dating. And that's essentially what was happening. Right. I think they were more just, it's not dating. It was that they were engaging in sexual activity. And nowadays, we joke about it. Like, well, you're going to have to buy me dinner before you get into my pants, good <laughs> sir. Like, that's a that's a joke. A very common right. one. Like, we're, you know, and that's not necessarily that you're paying for sex. But generally, like, it's funny that, like, yeah, we expect to be wined and dined before you try to get into our pants type of thing. And good for her. And she was drawn to a very particular type of man. And if you can guess already, because Gordon Fickling was also in the military and also that's kind of all that was around are these like hot military dudes and they they're coming home from war or about to be deployed into war and it's like what else is there to do there are so many jokes flashing through my head and i'm like no that's inappropriate no that's inappropriate no that's inappropriate but i think generally because i don't want to spend too much time on her sexual behavior is that yes betty enjoyed the company of Quite a few gentlemen. She was a young yeah, woman. Yeah, 21, 22 years old. And she had all of these servicemen around her. Back then, I'm not going to give my own personal thoughts, but she was considered an incredibly attractive woman. And of course, she's young and, you know, like fun and energetic. And I mean, that that's her business. You know that by saying, I'm not going to give my own personal thoughts, you already basically just told everyone you thought that she was not attractive. No, I'm just not trying to like objectify her. Oh, that was a nice spin. (laughs) Yeah, so basically all I want to say on that is her sexual business was her own. And yes, while she did enjoy the company of men, that doesn't mean that she wasn't discerning in that or that there were plenty of men who said that she denied them. Oh, yeah. Oh, and we'll talk about... Yeah, so she clearly, like, you know, she slept with who she wanted to and didn't sleep with who she didn't want to. And and that's her right. Right. But... That, yeah, that, She's that's... a young, single woman living her life. Mm-hmm. Back then, that wasn't okay. And they're going to find every way that they can to spin that. You know, I mean, it's the same way that now, today, the victim blaming that happens in sexual assault cases, mm-hmm. you know, and they try to find, oh, well, the way she was dressed, or she was out drinking at this party and didn't have someone with her. Back then, it was to this extreme where she couldn't even be casually dating Right. Without it being painted as some negative, risky lifestyle. Exactly. And just because, and that's a thing that has happened, I mean, 
way later than the 40s is that like women are what not allowed to enjoy sex they're not not allowed to to do that kind of thing and that's unfair i feel like we're going to start having a very different podcast if i engage in this (laughs) conversation (laughs) yeah what i mean is just that the way that she is depicted is some sort of sex fiend and that's not it right by our standards she was most certainly normal absolutely yeah that's that's the point I'm I'm trying to make here is that she was completely normal by today's standards. So, so to the 1940s media, suck on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, she never mind. Mm-hmm. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Right. So yeah, she did this dating for dinner, and one of the people that she stayed with, his name was Mark Hansen, because like I said, she was kind of couch surfing she didn't have a permanent home she wasn't i don't necessarily want to say using men but she certainly was using her assets to her advantage which again you do you betty fine fine yes using her assets to her advantage making sure she had a place to stay type of thing and one of these men was mark hansen now this is also debated as to whether or not he was someone that she did have any kind of physical relationship with, but she did stay there. And at least on two separate occasions, she was kind of kicked out. And that's believed to be because she didn't put out for him. He wanted to, and she declined his advances. Mm-hmm. And on one of these occasions, she went down to San Diego for a visit or whatever to chill out. And she met a woman there, Dorothy French. And Dorothy French kind of took pity on her they became really fast friends and she said hey why don't you come stay with me for the night she ended up staying there for like way longer than a night yeah i think what i saw in the most sources was that it was about a month yeah at the least that she wound up staying there but again she was expected to keep up with the housework which is something she wasn't interested in and the french family kind of did say that yeah she liked to go out a lot and liked to party again she's let, let me remind everyone she's a 22 year old Young woman. Right. Right. So she's going out and she meets a man in L.A., Robert Red Manley. And he was married. And I believe his wife was pregnant, was she not? I didn't see that. She may. I don't want that speculation. But he was married. That's a fact. Yeah, but we can put out. I mean, you know, we've said there's a lot of this stuff that is just speculation because of how long ago this happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you, if you see that in, in some sources, then we can say mm-hmm. it's speculated. You know, we know for a fact he was married. Yeah. That's supported. There's, you know, there's something to follow there. And it's believed that she was pregnant. We can't 100% prove that. We don't have a time machine right. to hop in. If we did, we would both be hopping in it to figure this one <laughs> right. out because it's eating us alive trying to First of figure all, this one out. Is that what we would do if we had a time machine? I'm pretty sure it would be like a billionaires if we had a time machine michael oh no no no! i would be like i'd be going back to black dahlia jack the ripper zodiac i'd be, I'd be going back to this crimes. nice evening and knocking those enchiladas right out of my hand <laughs> because i didn't need them <laughs> right so this red manly fellow she met him when she had gone back to la she was just going there for a visit again and when she returned to san diego because she was staying with Dorothy French. They kind of had a, you're not pulling your weight around here type of thing. So she called this guy, Manly, to come and pick her up. So he drove all the way to San Diego from L.A., which I looked it up. It's 112 miles. Hmm. Right, which is, I don't want to be crass, but I feel like that's a long way to drive for some booty. Okay. Right. 
That's a long way. So much for not objectifying. <laughs> I No, I didn't. I just said that was, <laughs> look, do you think I'm going to drive 112 miles for that? I certainly am not. Maybe I'll meet you in the middle. Depends on how. Like, okay, let's move on. <laughs> okay, anyway. so We're he, heading back towards yeah. that other podcast <laughs> we don't want to be hosting. Right, so he picks her up. He brings her back to L.A. They go to a party, and he gets a hotel room where she sleeps on a chair, and he sleeps in the bed. They have never had any kind of relations. And he says that he drops her off at the Biltmore Hotel. And that's about it. This is January 9th. Yeah, January 9th of 1947. Drops her off at the Biltmore Hotel. The last time that he sees her, I guess as he's like driving away, she's making phone calls in the lobby of the hotel. Because she was supposed to be meeting her sister, Virginia. And there's yes. actually quite a lot of connections with Virginia, I think, as we keep going with yeah. this. Virginia kind of pops up a lot. It seems like that's probably Virginia the was supposed to become visiting her. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's, well, I think there are, well, let's just say that the last major sighting confirmed is absolutely from Manly. Right. Saying he dropped and, her and off from at the Biltmore. Staff at the, the staff hotel. at the Biltmore, yes. But she was seen leaving the Biltmore as well, but that's like the last confirmed actual like. Right, and then there's some speculation about seeing her at a restaurant or a club nearby or yeah. things like that, but none of that's really confirmed. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff starts popping up. Yeah. And then no one sees her again until... Until Betty Bursinger, who we've already talked about. And it's about 10 o'clock in the morning on January 15th, 1947. And she is walking with her three-year-old daughter, as you mentioned. And in a vacant lot on South Norton Avenue, she uh, believes to have found a mannequin. And again, mannequin, uh, you know, she draws that connection because it is white as snow. Right. Mm-hmm. Which, what she's finding. And in half, the mm-hmm. torso is about a foot away from the legs. Yeah, like, and moved over slightly. Right. So then, and again, as you mentioned, she rushes to a nearby home. She calls the police. So now let's just kind of pick up there, right? We've already talked about the press is kind of gathering. Yep. Other people are gathering because they want to catch a glimpse of this as word starts spreading at the scene really very little evidence they other find, than her body yeah well right but they find a heel print near some tire tracks mm-hmm. in this lot and then they find a cement sack with some watery blood is what they believe just because of the coloring they really can't get anything from it and that's really it as far as evidence like the you know mm-hmm. other than with the body so just from observing the body of Betty Short, you can see that she is bisected at the waist. She is given what's called a Glasgow smile. Yeah. Thank the Joker, guys, if you don't know what that is. Right. So there there are these cuts from basically her mouth to her ears. So like carving in a permanent smile on her face. Yeah, we get it. We hurt. (laughs) Thanks. It's stated that it appears that it's done with like surgical precision. Mm Mm-hmm. No internal organs were damaged. Right, yeah. The intestines are actually tucked under the bottom half of her body. Like, yeah, like they're like pulled out and put... Right. She has been completely drained of blood and scrubbed clean. And there's no blood at the crime scene. Not a drop of blood at this dump site. They believe the body has been moved for that reason. Mm -hmm. Because you would have blood if someone is cut in half in this lot. They believe that the body is posed because her arms are up above her head and they're bent just about at right angles at the elbow and her legs are straight out and spread apart. 
Well, yeah, nobody just lands like that. Right. Perfectly with your, like, legs right underneath. No. Right. So then we'll move to the autopsy. So from the autopsy, they're able to gather that she's been dead approximately 10 hours when Mm -hmm. the body is found. So we're looking at late Mm -hmm. in the evening. Yeah, because they find her. Betty happens upon. Is it Betty? Yeah. That's her name. Yeah, Betty Bersinger. Yeah. Betty Bersinger happens upon her at approximately 10 a.m. Right. Yeah, so yeah, so we mentioned 10 a.m. on January 15th, so yeah. she's been dead approximately 10 hours. That places the time of death either late in the evening of January 14th or in the early morning hours of January 15th. Yeah. And you really can't get any more precise than that, especially because the body has been cleaned and then laid outside. Yeah. You don't know how long it's been outside, so there's all of these factors that could change that, but approximately mm-hmm. 10 hours post-mortem is when Betty Bersinger stumbles on the body in this lot. Right. There is bruising on the front and right side of her scalp, but there's no fracture to the skull. There are ligature marks on her wrists, ankles, and neck. There are cuts on her breasts and her thighs. There is a significant laceration on her right breast, and this is referred to in the autopsy as an irregular laceration with superficial tissue loss. They obviously check the body for any sperm, but none is found. Mm -hmm. But again, the body's been cleaned. They find some indications of sexual assault because her anal canal is dilated by one and three quarter inches. Lending to the surgical precision belief, she is bisected between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. And this is referred to as a hemiocorporectomy. Okay. And this was a technique that was taught in the 30s for surgeons. Her intestines are severed at the duodenum, and that's why they're then tucked under the bottom half of the body. There's very little bruising at the incision at her waist. And so this also leads them to believe that that's done post-mortem. Because the, you know, obviously the conclusion would be drawn if this is done while you're alive... There's going to be some bruising to that tissue. There is a gaping laceration about four and a quarter inches from her belly button to her pubic bone. Right. It's like an X. Mm Mm-hmm. There are lacerations on each side of her face. So this is that Glasgow smile that we were talking Mm -hmm. about. Yeah. On the right side, it's a three-inch laceration. And on the left side, it's two and a half inches. And they're able to determine that the cause of death is cerebral hemorrhaging. So that kind of ties to the bruising that they find on her head. Mm-hmm. Like blunt force trauma. Right. Yeah. So they're able to identify her body actually before the autopsy is even begun because they send her fingerprints to Washington, D.C. And they used a machine called a sound photo, mm-hmm. which I guess was like an early precursor to the fax machine. And Something so they're like able that. to send her Although, fingerprints. that's still really confusing for me how they just... If they sent it, like, via some sort of fax machine, how did they just match up fingerprints? There wasn't, like, a database. Yeah, and, I like, don't... And, like, wouldn't, wouldn't it take way longer for someone to look at fingerprints yeah, and, like, I don't yep, really, that's hers? I don't really know exactly how that happened, and I thought that that was a little odd, too, and I really couldn't find any further explanation. I mean, it's not disputed. 
it's put out there everywhere that that's how this was done. That yeah. they sent these fingerprints well, yeah, by they, sound photo. They had put posters out asking if you knew this woman and things, and nobody had nobody had reported her being missing or anything like that. It right. was yeah, I haven't seen it debated that this was how they identified right. her. Right, and I don't I don't really understand that whole process. And her either. fingerprints were on file because of a because a of job that arrest and an arrest. Yeah, that arrest in 1943 for underage drinking mm-hmm. and a job application she had put in. I don't I guess from a background check. Because yeah. this was sent to Washington, D.C. for the FBI. So they find the fingerprints in, from those two places. Mm-hmm. So there must have been a background yeah, check for some type of job. Curious to me. Because, like, now we have a computer that goes, you know, dot, 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 like, makes all the little, like, points. Right, you can just, like, scan it in and then it does all those points like, of comparison. Yes, Michael Shear is the perpetrator. Oh, I was not alive in 1947. I mean, now. You're older than me. Happened. Oh, my God. So... Just another opportunity for me to bring that up. So they're able to identify the body really quickly, kind of inexplicably quickly, because we really have no idea how that happens that fast. So then we'll move a couple of days out. January 21st, 1947, the killer, or someone who claims to be Betty's killer, calls James Richardson, who is the editor of the Los Angeles Examiner. Mm-hmm. about the case and the coverage of it and says that he plans to turn himself in. And he tells Richardson to expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail. Right. And then, lo and behold, three days later on January 24th... He um, delivers. Yeah. Literally. A suspicious <laughs> manila envelope is found by a postal service worker. It's addressed to the LA Examiner and other LA papers. Mm-hmm. Those words are written... Well, not written. They're spelled out using clippings from like newspapers and magazines. So they're trying to, I mean, presumably trying to disguise handwriting. Then there's a large message on the face of the envelope, also done with these clippings, that says, Here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow. And then inside this envelope, they find Elizabeth Short's social security card, her birth certificate, some photos, and an address book that's missing pages that has Mark Hansen embossed on the cover all of this stuff has been cleaned with gasoline which apparently gets rid of or is supposed to get rid of fingerprints i feel like if i received a strange manila package that smelled of gasoline i wouldn't open it well we're living <laughs> we're living in post 9-11 world where we're very suspicious yeah, of but still. unexpected mail yeah but who's st- still I'm not saying that what you're saying doesn't make sense. I'm just saying that we're also looking at it a little differently. And we're talking about this huge, sensationalized mm. murder that's just happened. You oh, know, because this is within days. I do believe, correct me if I'm wrong, it was the police that opened this. They, like, intercepted it. And they opened it with them, I thought. Yeah, because the postal service worker is the one who discovers this yeah and it says something about the dahlia on the front of the envelope oh yeah so they report it to police and so yeah police i don't know i would imagine it was the police who actually opened it and pulled the stuff out but the police were present when it because every the contents of it are all like yes this is this is evidence not just something that people are like hey look what we found mysteriously like no this is what came out of this envelope right. because the police are the ones that opened it. Yeah, so the police were there. I would imagine the police would be the ones to pull it out. Nothing was that specific that they were the ones that actually unpacked it, but they were there when it was opened. So even though it was cleaned with gasoline, which is supposed to eliminate fingerprints, they find several partial prints on the envelope and its contents, but those prints are compromised in transit to the FBI 
and they could not be properly analyzed. What? So here's my question. Something wasn't handled properly? But we identify Elizabeth Short so quickly because we send these prints by sound photo. And then we did what with these prints that were found? We're like sending them in the mail to the FBI? Why wouldn't those have been sent by sound photo? Who knows? It was obviously a very effective tool. So that was another thing that was then confusing to me. But if any of you are experts on telecommunications from the 1940s, please let us know. That's very specific. We are desperate. I would be very interested in speaking with that person. Yes. So they couldn't be analyzed because they were compromised in transit. Now, on the same day, so on January 24th, the same day that this envelope is being opened and these contents are found, a handbag and a black suede shoe are found on top of a garbage can in an alley about two miles from where the body had been found. And these are recovered by the police, but they had also been cleaned with gasoline. So they don't really get any information from these either. Honestly, the first thing I would have done if I were head detective on this case, send my blood- Who's buying this much gas? Send my bloodhounds out. Whoever smells like gasoline, (laughs) that's him. Right. Get him, boys. Who is filling up containers of gasoline nonstop right now? Because that's who we need to be talking to. He must smell. Like, if anybody lit a match next to this guy, he's done for. Is is that what you're suggesting they should have done? Just like... Maybe, I don't know. Like, walked around with a blowtorch through Los Angeles trying to see who caught fire? They don't even need sniffer dogs or any of that. You probably could have smelled this guy a mile away. How did they not find him? But also, I had never heard... Of that? Cleaning stuff with gasoline? That gasoline removed fingerprints, I, specifically. I don't know. It's se- I don't know anything about the chemical makeup of it, but to me, gasoline seems like a harsh enough material where I would even be like, yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense it. to me, but I, I didn't have that in my mind palace, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that right there should... I don't know. I feel like you should be able to kind of... near Like, who would be aware of that at this point? Like, who in 1947 is walking around with the knowledge that gasoline is going to remove fingerprints? And maybe we're completely wrong. Maybe that was very common knowledge back then, the way that we know about, like, point comparisons with fingerprints. I mean... Mm. Totally different world, so I guess it's possible. If any of you are specialists in the methane department, specifically the 1940s, please let us know. You are trying desperately to diversify the audience. Comment below. (laughs) Um, So then, can we talk about something else that's amazing, real quick? Because I don't actually have another place to throw this tidbit in there. So while we're talking about, so just ruin my section. Yeah, sure, go ahead. That's fine. People, (laughs) the people want to hear me, according to the survey. That should have been put out the week before this. And I'm assuming the results are that it's Yeah, we have me. not seen the results of this survey. We don't know who everyone <laughs> says has a better podcast voice. I'm going to it's me that has a better podcast voice. So You're they can shrill. get these. I am not shrill. <laughs> <laughs> so the pictures of Betty. Mm-hmm. They're all, they've also been retouched. Not in modern day. Back then. So in the newspapers where they say, have you seen her? They take a picture of her face during her autopsy. Have you seen these? No. So when Jason and I were watching like videos on this over the last week and stuff, they kept showing a picture of the crime scene where she's like laid under a blanket and everything and she's missing the marks. And I'm like, did they have a model pose for this or something like that? That can't be a real photograph. It is. They retouched it and they did so on the autopsy photo as well. And it says in the newspaper, have you seen this woman? And it says, face has been altered to take away marks of violence. 
So hmm. they removed like the Glasgow smile and like the cuts and things like that to see if people like recognized her. And in the famous Black Dahlia photo with her underneath the blanket, her face is also retouched. But was that done with like makeup physically before the picture was no, taken? They're no, they're retouching I, these photographs somehow guess, in 1947. I don't know if you were a specialist on <laughs> <laughs> and also just, photography specialist. For 1940s. all of you, for all of you who have been sitting there for the last I don't know 30 seconds or so, wondering who is this Jason Heather just mentioned? That is Heather's boyfriend's name. <laughs> it's your boyfriend's name. It's not... <laughs> um, so we hadn't. I don't think we've mentioned his name before. So just so that oh, people yeah, aren't trying to figure out who Jason is. Um, boo thing. So yeah, that's odd. Yeah, that's I don't, very odd. I don't yeah, know I didn't know if you'd seen them, and I'm like, either. where else is this going to fit? But clearly, we need well, to put it in this technology section. I have seen the photos, but I guess I never made the connection in my mind. Mm. Like, oh, this is like a picture after she's yep. dead, and those aren't. Yeah, that's odd. I don't know how that yeah. would be. Was done. it you? Did you go back in the time machine? Yeah, I used my time machine. Yeah, <laughs> but I brought my laptop with me. <laughs> <laughs> You're, yeah, I you're figured, just revealing everything. <laughs> yeah, that was a good tidbit. I'm like, where am I going to mention this? But thank you for that. Back to the gasoline. Well, we're moving on from the gasoline. So two days after this now. So now on January 24th, the envelope actually gets delivered. They find the contents. Then the handbag and the shoe are also found near where the body was found. Mm-hmm. Two days later, January 26th, another letter is received by the examiner. And this one is handwritten. So it seems like oh, did we mention you're the getting first sloppy one was like real quick. Yeah, I mentioned cutouts. it was the magazine. Yeah, I sure did. Oh, I meant to throw in something funny there, and I missed it. Oh, no, I was darn. Gonna, I was gonna like that's straight up like cartoonish, like magazine. Cuts. Well, I feel I was actually wondering while I was doing the research and and all that, I was wondering if this is where we get that from. Like, is that where this cliche comes from? Maybe it happened before. I don't know. That's what I I, I couldn't. I didn't listen. There was so much to research with this. I wanted to research when was this first done oh, to yeah. see. I would but love I'm to have researched this the, is where that started. Yeah, the fax machine, the gasoline, the oh, photo yeah. editing. Like So this one's handwritten that comes in on January 26th. And this one says, here it is, turning in Wednesday, January 29th at 10 a.m. Had my fun at police. And it was signed, Black Dahlia Avenger. So, one. What? Yeah, they signed it, Black Dahlia Avenger. How are Dahlia you the Avenger? Avenger? You killed her. How are you her Avenger? Well, I think that may be explained by another note that comes in in a little bit. So I guess. But I also thought that this was odd that he chooses 10 a.m. as the time that he's going to turn himself in. Mm. And it's exactly two weeks after the body was found. So I don't know what the significance of that might be. I have Well, it seems no... to be like on purpose. Just right. For... It just seems intentional. Just I don't for really like see... ceremony. Right. Like, yeah. Names of the location where he's going to turn himself in. Or maybe in. that's just the time he gets ready in the morning. I don't know. Uh, who knows? So he names the location where he's supposed to turn himself in. The police go and they wait there, but he doesn't show up. What a surprise. I feel like um, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about this right. <laughs> if he had shown up. Spoiler alert. He didn't show up and turn himself <laughs> in because the crime is unsolved. So instead, on January 29th at 1 p.m., three hours later than he was supposed to turn himself in, the examiner gets another oh cut God, and so pasted letter. So now we're back to cutting out magazine and newspaper clippings and and pasting them and this one says have changed my mind (laughs) you think (laughs) you would not give me a square deal dahlia killing was justified and so i think that's where black dahlia avenger comes from that whoever this is believes that he was justified in also murder who was he talking to that didn't give him a deal i have no idea there wasn't like some announcement made. He's where, not really saying where the that, LAPD was like, "Nah, man, we're gonna give you more than ten years." 
<laughs> and he's like, well... Oh, well, then never that's mind. That's not the deal. <laughs> no, because um, it just says, you would not give me a square deal. So I just feel like he was just assuming. I don't necessarily think that that means he had been talking to someone. And I think it's a safe assumption that you're not going to be happy with the sentence if you are convicted of this brutal murder. Anyway, so then another couple of days later, February 1st, the Los Angeles Daily News reports that the case has run into a stone wall and they have no new leads. We're not even a month out. And this other paper, you know, the examiner has been obviously very heavily involved in all of this. Yeah. And now the LA Daily News is like, oh, cold case. They have no new leads. It's not going anywhere. And we're not even a month out. The examiner, on the other hand, continues to run stories about the murder. And it is front page news for the examiner for 35 days. Later in February, there is a warrant served on the University of Southern California Medical School for a list of their students. Okay, so yeah. they're, really, they're really stuck on the method by which her body was bisected. Well, yeah, because it couldn't be just some random guy walking up and slicing some woman. Well, in right, and a very without, yeah. and a very specific like there's a technique that was taught yeah. in the 30s to surgeons for this. So they go to USC Med School. They ask for a list of students. USC Med School agrees to give the list of students' names, but they want it to remain confidential. Like they don't want all of the names just being plastered out there. So I guess they agree to that. They get the list of names. They run background checks on everybody. It doesn't turn anything up. What a surprise. Right. So then, here's another interesting turn. On March 14th, 1947, a pile of clothes is found at the shoreline in Venice, California. And there is an apparent suicide note with these clothes. And it says, To whom it may concern, I have waited for the police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I am too much of a coward to turn myself in. So this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that or this. Sorry, Mary. And I what? wish I wish <laughs> I wish the listeners could see both of our faces cuz I'm just like shaking my head wildly like so many questions, right? Yeah. Like who's Mary? Yeah, that's my first question. You've been talking about turning yourself in this whole time and now you're too much of a coward, but the last time you didn't turn yourself in, you said it was because they weren't going to give you a square deal. Yeah. Like what's going on? Yeah, but and again, also, we don't like, know for you... sure that any of these were written by the actual killer. Right. And if you didn't want to be found out, like, I wouldn't be like, hey, sorry I killed that person. Sorry, Mike. Because right. then I'd be like, oh, well, who's Mike? I'm going to go find him and see who he knows. Right. Like, <laughs> Yeah, so the clothes are first seen by a beach caretaker, and then they're reported to the lifeguard captain, whose name was John Dillon. And Dillon notifies the West Los Angeles police station. So they come out, take a look, and the clothes give absolutely no clue about who owned them, who they Please tell to. me they've been washed in gasoline. I did not find that. They weren't. Piece I just wanted you to tell oh, okay. me. <laughs> they weren't um, that. So it doesn't give any clues. So as the investigation continues, at about this time, they get 60 confessions, almost all of them from men. Now, that was how I read it in multiple sources. So none of those sources mentioned that then, you know, what follows is that some of these people who confessed to this murder were women. Mm. But that's obviously the meaning of that, to say that most of them were men. And I just thought that that was interesting. You don't see any women's names tossed around when you're looking at the suspects no. for this. Well, that's another thing, because women are weak and can't commit murder, apparently, so... 
Right. Unless... Unless they're Darlie Routier because you're yeah. sexist and you believe women are always it, guilty. Yeah, in the 1940s. Unless you are a lesbian surgeon. Oh, right. Which is another, you know, because God forbid a woman like another woman in the 1940s <laughs> because then you're a monster who apparently has the capability of killing somebody because that is another rumor yeah, that, that was flies thrown out, out there, there. That Elizabeth yeah. Short was a lesbian and then must have been entangled with someone. Yes. And, that and was... obviously lesbian. Bad, bad, bad. Right. You know, you. so yeah, another just horrible viewpoints that you guys already know. Right. We, we don't have to we say it. We are preaching yeah, to the choir and yeah. So they got Yeah, we 60... can dispel that. It wasn't a... She was not a lesbian. No. Nothing supported that. Yeah. And certainly the person who killed her was not a lesbian doctor. We're not even going to go into that with the suspects. Right. That, so, that didn't happen. So, about, so around the time they get 60 confessions, most of them are from men. But over time, just like from then to now, over 500 people have confessed to the Black Dahlia murder. And some of them hadn't even been born at the time that she was murdered. Let me just tell you... When you listen to these That's what unsolved, they use their time machine for. <laughs> these unsolved cases, like in th- these big famous ones, like John Bonet and stuff like that, where these people come out and they confess and they say all these like horrible things they've done. And you're just thinking like, I know you didn't do this, but I want to arrest you for what you just said to me. Right. Well, and actually like, <laughs> what I did think was interesting Because is, you should not be let out. <laughs> and what I did think was interesting though was that a lot of sources did mention as they were talking about these confessions that came in that several of the people who came in and did these confessions were arrested for obstruction of justice. As they should be. Like they just, they came in, they wasted police time. I mean, we're talking about, they had hundreds of people working on this. They were spending a ton of time on it when, when this is first happening. And so then coming in to take a false confession is just taking time away from the investigation. A lot of people were charged with obstruction of justice for these false confessions. So that's really, I think, where I kind of want to draw the line here. With the investigation? Yeah, because as we go any further into the investigation, I think we're going to be talking about suspects. Right. So maybe let's touch on a piece I think that, again, is kind of like an odd placement, I guess. But the media. So obviously you've already talked about a lot of the investigation being done through the media Mm -hmm. and like the newspaper things and the letters. But there are also some other things that I also mentioned in the biography portion that the media was more detrimental to this case than anything, in my opinion. Sure. So I had listened to something and they call it yellow journalism, which Mm -hmm. is basically just they just they get something and then they just blow it up out of proportion or like enhance it or whatever they have to do to sell papers. They're just trying to sell papers. Mm -hmm. Which I don't know why it has a special term for back then because we do the same thing today. Right. I mean. (laughs) I think we may have listened to the same thing because I was listening to a recording where they kept mentioning yellow journalism and I was like, oh, they're trying to have a drinking word like we do on our show. (laughs) Because they just, they really did just constantly yellow journalism. Yellow journalism, just constantly inserting that term. Some things that don't really have a place anywhere else in this story we have to reserve for this media portion. They're not really part of the investigation or anything else like that. So let's first start with uh, the Black Dahlia. Yeah. So it's still highly disputed where that name originated from. I think it's safe to say that it's been thoroughly investigated, that this was a moniker that was given to her before her death. Which is not the commonly held belief. Because right. the commonly held belief is that that was something that came from that the, the media, media made that the that. media gave her that name. Yeah, but in fact, it was uh, we haven't described her appearance, but she was she was already a fair woman to begin with right. before she was found in the way she was. But she was a fair woman. She did color her hair. She had brown hair, but her she colored it black, and she preferred to wear black, like a a nineteen forties goth, if you will. 
And now I've heard she wore flowers in her hair. I was only able to find one photo of her, period, where she had big flowers in her hair. Right, but, but I found I found a couple different accounts with specific people from, it was like a convenience store or, or a corner store yeah, type a cor- thing, which is where they- Yeah, act, like a drugstore that right, she went to. Where it seems like it actually kind of originated, that the staff mm-hmm. and other patrons of this store- Yeah, they said that like the, the men called mm-hmm. her the black doll. Because she wore the flowers in her hair. She was always dressed in a lot of black. Yeah. And then they it was- also kind of rooted in, there was a film noir from yeah, 1946, called the, the Blue, Blue Dahlia. Dahlia. Yeah. And so yeah. it was kind of that it reference. It was just echoing that. That reference in pop culture, I yeah. think, is where that name came from. But it's, And they changed and it to black because of right, what because she Right, because of the wore. way she dressed. Yeah. The first time that it's mentioned in the media was by the Herald Express on mm-hmm. January 17th. So this is only two days out. So I think that's why I can kind of understand why... Mm-hmm. It might be believed that it was coined by the media because so quickly after she passed, yeah, that was there. But then you can also use the other side of that reasoning right. that how would they have come up with that so quick before we really know a ton about this woman? Yeah. If it wasn't something that already existed before she died. Yeah, because also you can look at newspaper articles. They were calling this the werewolf murder. Yeah. Also, I already don't like these newspapers. But another thing, why are you calling it the werewolf murder? Why not the vampire murder? She was drained of blood. Where do you get werewolf from? I just want to say that. I think they talked, what I saw as far as why it was referred to as the werewolf murder was just because of the grisly nature. I guess. Of the way that she had been. Don't give them any credit. No, no. But I'm just saying, I'm trying to see it from all sides Mm. because I don't think, I think the media had a very specific intention for trying to use things like the werewolf killer and then going to the Black Dolly and not really using her name for the headlines. Yeah. And that just goes, and and I don't mean to take away from this case, but just another incredibly famous case with a nickname was Amanda Knox. Mm -hmm. They called her Foxy Noxie. And she was also, there was a lot going on with her sexual partners in her case. Mm -hmm. And they used Foxy Noxie against her, even though it was a name that had been given to her like in high school. Right. For a completely different reason. But that just goes to show you. we all had to be referred to as names people came up with for us in high school yeah i mean it's a cute name the way that they used it though obviously not it was derogatory for her right and i feel like the black dahlia was something that they used like it sounds mysterious right that kind of thing and because of that reference to a film noir it gives that kind of feel yeah but that just shows what kind of power the media holds right and another thing that the media did which is the most despicable thing. And I, which you probably have it down, which newspaper was responsible for this. So one of the four main newspapers that were around. So it's one of those that you've mentioned, either the Examiner or the Herald or something like that. But or the Times. Yeah. yeah. They called Elizabeth Short's mother, Phoebe, mm-hmm. and said, Betty has won a beauty pageant. Yeah. We need some more information for her expose or her biography. Can you give us something? And she did, of course, and she was happy that her daughter won. And they, she'd given her some tidbits, but it obviously wasn't what they wanted to hear. So they just flat out tell her, well, your daughter's been murdered. Mm-hmm. Can you give us more kind of thing? She didn't find out from the police. She didn't see it in the news. She found out from this jerk of a reporter calling her and just, uh, it makes me so mad. It makes me so so mad for this woman. Yeah, absolutely. That that's how she found out about her daughter's death. It just really... Ugh. But yeah, that's. I just wanted to touch on the 
how the media ran with this. And again, like you said, they kept this in the media for so long. She was headline news. And we'll get to it when we talk about suspects and things, but there were subsequent murders that the media tried to link to this without any facts. Oh, yeah. But anything that they could hang on to, like the lipstick murder and things like that, and they just went for it and was like, oh, let's link it to the Black Dahlia because that's what was going to sell their papers. Yeah, I'm trying to find right now. I can't remember for sure what paper. It looks like it was the Los Angeles Examiner Yeah, that called her mother. So we were right. Yeah. It was one of these Shame papers we've you. already talked about. That's terrible. But I couldn't remember. I hadn't jotted that down. I thought that that was really gross and disgusting mm-hmm. and unethical. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the Los Angeles Examiner that had done that. Yeah. And they they had her father, Betty's father, had also given comments to the press as well. Mm-hmm. And he seemed to not, not care at all. Yeah. Well, how much could you really care when you fake your own suicide to yeah. abandon I mean, he barely family. knew her, I guess. Right, she know? was five years old when he did that. Yeah, and then and he then lived he with her for only a few a months. A couple of months so. and then kicked her out, yeah. Yeah, just terrible. Okay, so moving so on to suspects. suspects. Yeah, so, so let's first go through these suspects that we're about to present to you. There are, first of all, there are hundreds. Because everybody who ever came in contact with her in California, everybody who had any kind of medical background... Those and were all anybody who had any type or of under sexual suspicion. crime history right. was pretty immediately yeah, they were investigated all, all too. under suspicion. We are narrowing it down to just a handful. And these that's just because these are the most notable, not necessarily because we believe them. Right. Because I think the first few, we, we can say pretty much that this isn't them. So the first two that I want to mention, and these are just kind of throwaways, I guess, for lack of a better term, yeah. is that they they thought that the lipstick killer may have been the murderer of the Black Dahlia. Yeah, they tried really hard to say that this was a serial murderer. Yeah, they sure did. So the lipstick killer, and then also the Cleveland torso killer. Yeah. I I can see why you would think of the Cleveland torso killer, but there was nothing there. There was nothing actually no. connecting other than the fact that her torso had been, yeah. you know, that she had been bisected. Yeah. So if we back up to the lipstick murderer, the one thing that had showed, there was something written on her that said... It was basically F-U-B-D, like Black Dahlia. Right. It wasn't. It's actually F-U-P-D, like I would think police Police department. department. Right. And there isn't anything else joining these murders. Now, I don't really have too much background on that one, but I have, however, researched the Cleveland Torso murder way prior to ever researching this. Mm -hmm. And then when I heard that this was part of it, I was like, well, that's stupid. That was Mm -hmm. my first thought. I'm like, no, that's not right. Because... Like you said, you think torso, this would match. The bodies in the Cleveland torso murders, they're, they were like dismembered, mm-hmm. not bisected. Not bisected using a and surgical he, technique. Yeah. And he usually left the torso. Right. Didn't cut the torso in half. Right. Like that's, so like, again, I can understand like kind of the immediate correlation, but there yeah. was nothing there. So the fact yeah. that that was ever even something really pushed out there was well, that ridiculous. His, his MOs were usually like vagrants things like that, um, or homeless people. And she, I guess, would be considered homeless. Yeah. But again, the, the timeline doesn't match up. And yeah, well, it wasn't a, I don't believe that it was part of a serial murder. Right. At least not those two, for sure. Right. So then two other pretty immediate suspects. And I think understandably, these would be people that you would look into, but mm-hmm. they have both been cleared. 
Mark Hansen, whose name Obvious. was on the address book. Right. And that was the man that I said previously that she did actually have a relationship with, not not necessarily romantic. Right. But there she was a connection. Had, yes. she. That's the man that she stayed with and that gifted her that address book. Right. So, so he owned the address book right. that was mailed to the examiner, reportedly was rejected by Betty Short on several occasions. He, mm-hmm. he tried to make romantic sexual or advances, sexual yeah. advances and they were rejected. That was kind of circulated as the motive. He was cleared. Mm-hmm. And they, to my knowledge, he has no police record. No, I don't believe so. No, he wasn't into like, he hadn't committed any crimes or anything like that. Right. I mean, he was kind of a crappy dude, but. Well, yeah. They also then investigated several people that were in the address book. Mm-hmm. And again, you understand why they would do that. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, those people were cleared. There was one guy that they looked into a little bit more than the others, and he had a rock-solid alibi. Mm-hmm. I didn't even write his name down because he was cleared right away. And then the other pretty immediate suspect is Red Manley, the last person to see her alive. Yeah, and his story is a little sad, I think. But he took several polygraphs. Yeah. And again, not admissible in and court. And he was given, um, wasn't he given sodium pentothal? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And that's truth serum. Yeah. And still was passing all of these polygraphs. A side note, I wonder if, like, you can get sodium pentothal for, like, I would really love to give it to you. I don't think that see. you want to hear my truth. Huh. <laughs> I... So anyway, so again, I, you can understand why these two men would be kind of immediately looked at. Yeah. But they were both cleared pretty quickly. So then there are some other names that circulate, and we have, you know, a little bit more yeah. on some of them than others. But And then, unfortunately, going back to Manley, he, because he was a suspect for so long, mm-hmm. and he kind of, like, completely spiraled after that. Well, yeah, I think he, when He you're... definitely had, like, huge, like, mental issues. Well, and I think you also have, like, a sense of guilt. You know, I dropped her off there, mm-hmm. didn't stick around because he had some other type of appointment or something when he dropped her off at the Biltmore. So I think you also carry some guilt, even though you didn't do this. Yeah. You know, we all blame ourselves. We try to think of ways that we should have done something differently or that we could have saved someone or helped someone. Yeah. When something like that would happen. So um, they also looked into, at some point, the publisher of the Los Angeles Times, Norman Chandler. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And really the only reason... I, there He had a, a biographer that claimed that he had impregnated Betty Short. So this biographer claims that Norman Chandler had gotten <laughs> Betty pregnant because they had had right. a sexual relationship. No evidence of that. So there's really nothing to that, but it was circulated. Then there is Leslie Dillon. Yeah. Um, so he's interesting because he actually... He's the one who made himself a suspect. Right. So he <laughs> he's 27 years old at the time. Yeah. He was an aspiring writer and had previously worked as a bellhop and a mortician's assistant. Well, he was a bellhop at this time. That was his right. that was his current profession. Yeah, he was but currently he a bellhop been and he had an been a mortician's, to a mortician's assistant before, yeah. So he contacts the LAPD, um, a psychiatrist working with the LAPD about the case saying that he has an interest in writing a book about sadism and sexual psychopathy. He never confessed, but the psychiatrist, through their correspondence, came to believe that he was 
the murderer. They convince him to meet in Las Vegas. They had offered him a couple of different places like Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and I think there was somewhere else. They agree on Las Vegas. And when they meet him in Las Vegas, this psychiatrist working with the LAPD actually interrogates him. And he goes with an undercover LAPD officer. Mm -hmm. But the psychiatrist does the interrogation. Leslie Dillon accuses a man by the name of Jeff Connors. Right, yeah. Who they originally think he is making up. It's a figment of his imagination. He is like like disassociating. Yeah, an extension of him. Right, he's disassociating. And so he's putting it on this because they couldn't find Jeff Connors anywhere. They were looking for him. They actually do eventually find a man by the name of Artie Lane. Mm -hmm. Who is in fact... Jeff Connors. Right. Yeah. And he exists. Yeah, he, he went by... He's like a I, real person. I don't know where how, where you get Jeff Connors from Artie Lane, but... No idea. It was like an alias or something. He was a maintenance man at Columbia Studios at the time of the murder. So now he's tying into all of this gossip that this is an aspiring actress and all of those types of things. But there's really... There's nothing linking either of these men to the murder... Right. Dylan, Other than he inserted himself into it, and he does have some sort of, I don't want to say medical background, but medical background. Well, and that was one of the things I wanted to touch back on, was they talked about him previously being a mortician's assistant, but he only did that for like three weeks. Yeah. And he drove the ambulance. Mm-hmm. He wasn't actually like working with the mortician. Well, he wasn't working with the bodies. Apparently, one of the investigators said that he remembered... Dylan talking about certain things like draining a body and like he asked him questions in the interrogation like what he would do with certain body parts and stuff like that which right and some of the things kind of lined up with marks that were found on the body and things like that but again nothing really actually linking him and you can tell me whether or not you found this because I only saw this I think on two sources when they were discussing Leslie Dillon, but that he was on a military base in Florida at the time that she was murdered? Yes, he was. So not in Los Angeles. Yeah. I'm not 100% that he was in Florida, but I did see that it was debunked because he was not there. Right. Yeah, for whatever reason, they they ruled him out. Yeah, the two sources that I found said the military base in Florida. Although he shows up on quite a few lists of current suspects. Right, and I, but I think most of the reason that he shows up there is because he inserted himself into the case. Right. And because they claim that he had this medical experience, which really, if you worked for three weeks as a mortician's assistant, yeah. you're, that's not really medical experience. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really, I don't think that that really holds much weight. Yeah. So then there's, this one I thought was really interesting. Orson Welles was accused. So this is one that I didn't look into, specifically because you wanted to talk about it. Right. Tell me a tale, Mike. So here's, I think it's, I I obviously don't really think that this holds water, but it's interesting. Okay. And it's just interesting that someone so high profile was accused of this. But, so he was suggested as a suspect by a former neighbor of the Short family in -hmm. Massachusetts in a book that she wrote in 2000. And so what she leans on, basically, is that I guess it's widely believed that Orson Welles had a volatile temperament, so he would, like, fly into rages, that he allegedly (laughs) created mannequins three months before the Black Dahlia murder 
that had virtually identical lacerations to the ones on Betty Short's body. They were used for a House of Mirrors set in his movie The Lady from Shanghai, and he was making that at the time of the murder with Rita Hayworth. What I then thought was interesting is that the scenes that used that set were deleted from that movie. And that was done by the co-founder, president, and production director of Columbia Pictures. And so now again, Columbia Pictures is coming back in because that's where Artie Lane had worked. Mm. So I just, I mean, it's just interesting. So then this former neighbor in her book claims that Elizabeth Short wrote in one of her last letters to her sister that a movie director was going to give her a screen test. And Orson Welles was a director, actor. Then she So was, is that true though? Was she getting a screen test? I couldn't find any evidence of that. I couldn't find the actual letter. That's just what she says in her book. The neighbor, not the sister. That's what the neighbor says. Right. Okay. So that supposedly the sister told her. Right. So we're like getting yeah. So then she also, and you didn't look into this one, but I was really curious to see where this could have come from. But she cited that Orson Welles was familiar with the lot where the body was found, and I don't know how this woman living in Massachusetts would know. Whether or not Orson Welles was familiar with a vacant lot on Norton mm. Avenue. How frequently did he talk about it in his interviews on television? Right. I, so that was I, my favorite place to play. <laughs> <laughs> so I literally wrote, cited like Wells. I like to take naps. I wrote, cited Wells' familiarity with the dump site. And then I just put a big old question mark. Because I couldn't find any explanation for this familiarity she claimed he had. Then she also talked about a magic act that he performed for soldiers during World War II. I love magic. Me too. Like magicians, yeah. Yeah, but so she was, I, I imagine the line that she's trying to draw here is that, you know, the cliche trick is to saw a woman in half. Oh, God. Right. Okay, yeah, I didn't even. <laughs> it's insane, but she cites the magic act. You were right. This is wild. <laughs> it, right? But it's so interesting. So Like completely fabricated, but wild, yeah. <laughs> then there was... I found this on a couple of different sources. I couldn't find like I couldn't find like hard evidence of it, but it was cited in a couple of different places that Orson Welles applied for his passport on the same day that that first package was received by the examiner. Yeah, but right there, uh, there's, okay. <laughs> but just I mean, just a weird coincidence. Just odd that that there's you know that there's little things like that that actually do connect. He went to Europe for ten months. While he was editing Macbeth, which he directed and starred in, and Columbia Pictures is telling him, you need to come back, we need to finish this movie, because it's supposed to be released, and he refused to come back. And this is right after the murder, while everything's still being investigated. So just... Were people suspecting him at the time or something, or...? I couldn't find anything that showed he was ever really... That he was officially suspected at all, or that anyone generally suspected him... Until this woman wrote this book. So I think she found these interesting coincidences, which you can look back at, you know, 50 years later. So he refused to come back to complete it. Then this neighbor also claims that she spoke with witnesses who said that 
Elizabeth Short and Orson Welles frequented the same restaurant in Los Angeles. And that waitresses at this restaurant believed that Elizabeth Short at the time was dating someone who worked at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Couldn't find names. I couldn't, you know, I don't own this woman's book. Maybe she has names in the book, but I couldn't find names. I can't back any of that up. This is just claims that this woman is making. So I just thought there's some interesting coincidences there. I think there's some stuff here that is just absolutely wild, like she was just grasping at some straws because she liked the idea of accusing somebody so high profile. There's nothing actually connecting him to this. No hard evidence that I could locate anywhere that supports most of these claims that she's making. But I just thought it was interesting that Orson Welles is thrown into the mix of this. For no good reason. Right. But interesting nonetheless. Yeah, interesting. I just certainly wouldn't try to ruin someone's life by writing a book and fabricating a bunch of... Right. Well, I think Orson Welles had passed away by then, but you're destroying a legacy of, of someone. Yeah, I just... Whatever. I agree with you. Just thought it was interesting. So I wanted to kind of run down that theory quickly. So who's next? Um. (laughs) Preferably someone that, you know, may have any kind of connection to the case. Not someone who... uh, Well, I think we have one more interesting... Not somebody who maybe, you know, had a familiarity with the dumping site. Yeah, I don't know. In your imagination. Um, (laughs) Not my imagination. Her imagination. So just another one that I thought was kind of interesting who's tossed in there is Bugsy Siegel. Oh, God. Allegedly, he was a suspect, uh, but it's unclear why. Like, actually a suspect for LAPD. But it's unclear why he would have been looked into. They had another, I can't remember which one, but they definitely had another suspect that was part of organized crime. I have his name. As well. Oh. So you are talking about Jack Dragna. And they believed that he, or there were rumors anyway, yeah. that he may have been trying to frame Bugsy Siegel because they were both involved in the mafia. Yeah. And Bugsy Siegel had targeted Dragna's business interests beginning in the 30s as soon as he arrived in California. Yeah. Dragna was in the mafia and he was known for like an extortion racket was his biggest thing. So that was tossed out there as well. So another kind of a tangential theory involving Bugsy Siegel. So Bugsy Siegel is accused in a book called The Black Dahlia Files, The Mob, The Mogul, and The Murder That Transfixed Los Angeles. And in the book, they say basically if Bugsy Siegel were involved, he would have sent one of his henchmen. That's who would have actually done it, but it would have been done on his behalf. Yeah, you're right. The henchman that would have gone through all of that trouble to kill this girl for what reason? I'm just saying, yeah, like no real reason given. Just again, thought it was interesting. So there's also, they're now throwing organized crime names in here. And there's really nothing supporting that. Doesn't seem like an... I mean, the so I could understand. I, I hear a lot of people, the first thing they say when it comes to like organized crime suspects is the Glasgow smile. Right. Which, yes. But you also don't saw someone in half and go through all of those kinds of painstaking details. Draining all draining, of the blood, yeah. washing the body, I mean, I and the see, surgical precision yeah, it was done being with. Being shot and then putting the smile on and leaving someone there. Right. Not stripping them, mutilating, all of those things. Like, that just doesn't... And then this random lot on Norton Avenue. They yeah. have money to make. Anyway, so 
now I think we're down to the two top contenders. Yeah, and... The names that people who are familiar with this case and have been listening are like, why aren't they talking about these two? We were saving the two of them for the last. And again, there are many more suspects. Also, the suspects that we've given, there are many more details on them as well. Those are just quick reviews on suspects that kind of stuck out to us. And then fizzled out. Yeah. There's, you could find countless books, movies, articles, stuff dedicated to these people. So go wild. It'll take you months to get through. All right. So, of course, the two that we're talking about are George Hodel and Walter Bailey. Yep. So I think maybe now we should lay out there who we think. Yeah. Because I think we've already... We discussed up until this point. We kind of made it clear that each of us was leaning towards one or the other. We don't know... We don't know who. We said these were the two viable suspects at this point. The ones that, you know, it's more more likely than not one of these two people. And so we talked about some of the other stuff leading up to it. We have not talked about these two men. So, um, which one of them do you think it is? I don't want to answer first. Yes, answer first. Okay, so, as I told you while we were at dinner, I was kind of still... I was leaning in one direction. Mm Mm-hmm. Hadn't really decided for sure who I thought really was probably more likely. I think where I sit now is that Walter Bailey. I am surprised. I thought for sure you were going to say George Hodel. I thought for sure. I so, thought that I got the feeling that that's who you thought that I thought it yeah, was. Yeah, I was like, yeah, you're going to fall into that trap. <laughs> so I'm just going to go ahead and say it now. I absolutely do not think George Hodel did it. All right. I'm, I honestly don't even think that he's a good suspect. I know we discussed that, but that's where I mean, like, I'm 100%. I don't think it was him. I don't necessarily believe that Walter Bailey did it either. Those are the only two suspects that I think are worth investigating. But... That have been named that I that I can see, but I probably wouldn't even. I don't think either one of them hold much. But if we're picking between these two, I would lean more towards Walter. Yeah, for okay. sure. Because so I, de- but I definitely don't think that George had dealt. So it. we're in the same we're in the same boat. I don't think that I'm as certain that it could not have been George Hodel at all. Yeah, I feel like it wasn't him. But I definitely lean more toward Walter Bailey. I mean, obviously, there are millions of other theories. There were all these other suspects, people Mm -hmm. that they probably didn't even think to speak to. Yeah. Things that haven't been picked up on. So who knows? There could be a ton of other solutions. Mm -hmm. But as of right now, really... One girl, one murder. She didn't have a whole lot of long-term relationships with people where she lived because she was, for lack of a better term, homeless. Right, couch yeah. surfing, like we she said. She didn't grow up there, nothing like that. So, yeah, it could have been, it honestly could have been... Anybody. Anybody with some sort of medical, surgical background. Yeah, I definitely believe they had to have had some type of yeah. medical background. So, but really when... And I do think it was a man. I'll just throw that out there, because I know a lot of people say that it is female. It has nothing to do with whether or not I think a female is capable. I just do think for the telltale signs of how she was found and things like that, I think it was a male. I, I would tend to agree with that as well yeah. but really so when you when you go to research this stuff if you google who killed the black dahlia mm-hmm. george, Hodel george Hodel shows up yeah 
And that's a little... And you have to do a little bit of digging to then even find Walter Bailey's name. Yeah. But they're really the only two that there's a lot of stuff out there about that people are still making arguments. Well, then you also have to click George Hodel and then read to say, oh, no, he hasn't actually been arrested, convicted. He wasn't even actually really truly investigated. He was a a loose suspect. Let's just get into George Hodel. Yes, let's, we'll talk about okay, George Hodel first. Let's do this. So, so he oh, was, oh, you're gonna you're gonna do George Hodel. Well, I mean, I was just gonna kind of start it off. On, we'll we'll go back and forth. That's kind of our thing. I guess. So in so in 1949 is kind of when eyes turned to him. Yeah. So in the vicinity of the original investigation, he was mm-hmm. he was actually looked and at. this is the character that I was talking about earlier, where currently in the media. He is the one with all of the attention, mm-hmm. more so than Betty herself. Mm-hmm. All eyes on him. And we'll, yeah, once we get there, we'll, you'll see why. But as you said, to be very clear, he was never formally charged. Nope. So he has not been tried. He right. was not convicted. He really wasn't, it wasn't public that he was a suspect. Right. Or had been, you know, thought to be the murderer until after he died by his own son. Yeah, Steve. Hodel. He has another name. He has a middle name. Um, But it's Steve Hodel, who is actually a twin. Oh, I actually did not know that. Yeah. Wow. He has a twin brother. I can't remember the twin brother's name. Um, But Steve Hodel, and he was a, he was a Los Angeles homicide detective. Yes, he was. And. Which I think is why people pay so much attention to what he's saying. He uses that. I think, to put some weight behind yeah, his accusation so, against his father. Yeah, Steve Hodel, he found out from his sister that the father was suspected or was a suspect in the Black Dahlia case. This, right. is, this is all what he claims. He finds out from talking to his sister that his father is a, was a suspect in the Black Dahlia case. Well, he didn't to, do it. That was to a clarify that, the... Because George Hodel had like he had a bunch siblings. of children yeah. by a bunch of women. He had like eleven children by five different women. Yep, but we'll I, get we'll get back right. into the history of his stuff here. Right. But yeah, because the yeah. S- the sister that we're talking about is Tamar, right? This, yes. This is so. This is his older sister. Who we'll also get into her uh-huh. as well. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack for this guy. So, but going into present day or like when this all started is. Steve Odell calls his sister and she says, oh, by the way, dad was a suspect in the Black Dahlia case. He didn't do it, but he was. Isn't that interesting? And then he he claims that he originally started looking into his father to debunk that rumor. Right. And pretty early on, he finds uh, these two photographs and he believes that the photographs are of Elizabeth Short. Now, one of them has been proven not to be. Yeah, as absolutely proven. It's someone else by the name of Maria. Right. And then they the actually other know one, who it was and they know who took the photo. Yeah. Not Elizabeth And then the Short. other one, the family's like, yeah, nope, that's not her. Right. The Short family says, no, that's not. And also, I, Heather, say, no, neither one of them are her. Yeah, I don't Have think you, either like, one of the photos well, even look that much like her. They don't look anything like her. The women, the women in both photographs are pale with black hair. That's as far as the similarities go for right. me. I think it's ridiculous. Now, he goes on to say that, well, it doesn't matter if it was her. It's just something that sparked my interest into looking deeper into my father. Fine. Right. 
But still, that's what a lot of people see. And you need to come out and say that it's not her because it's not her. Right. Anyway. So who was George Hodel? You want to tell us? Well, I mean, I, I didn't go into a ton of detail because I'll tell like you. you said, well, because like you said, though, there's so much out there about him. Yeah. So I really just kind of jotted down reasons why he's looked at and why people make the argument. Yeah. So let's make a long story short with who he actually is. So George Hodel, like I said, he had 11 children by five wives. You do you, boo. He was definitely into some sort of polygamy or he for certain had some sort of addiction to sex relationships those kinds of things mm-hmm. and not officially diagnosed no but just but with everything yeah, that's, that's out there you can tell yeah, well i guess like from from things that his family members and his his wives had said like he certainly had an issue with staying inside the marriage and da 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 da. Well, that's why you yeah. have five wives. Yeah, we won't go into super super detail. And then that brings us up to he also had, and again, this is disputed, but probably I would lean towards it's pro it's probable that he had an incestuous relationship with multiple family members, namely, uh, mainly Tamar. His daughter, which is the one that originally told Steve Hodell that her father was a suspect in the case, and but he was didn't, actually like, point to him. He was tried for so that's where the police, molestation. Yes, so he was alleged to have to allegedly, have had, yeah, alleged to have had actual intercourse with his daughter. And this is going to be your final trigger warning because as we go into this, it gets a little worse. And he was tried for that on two counts. And he was acquitted. He sure was. But that's what kind of brought him to the top because he had the medical background. So he had a medical degree and he had studied surgery. Like he had studied as a surgeon. Mm-hmm. But he was not practicing. So that's one of the main reasons why I was like, well, it can't be him. However, and I still don't think it's him. However, I looked into this and I actually did find evidence that yes, he did his practice was in gynecology but yeah, he, he ran an did STD have, clinic yes but he did have surgical expertise that's well because on he multiple had, because he had studied it but when you really when you look at what he was doing with his life because they say with with the precision that it was done this had to have been someone that had yeah. a lot of experience someone who did this on a regular basis, mm-hmm. and he didn't. He didn't do it on a regular basis. He didn't do it basis. on a regular basis, but that's not to say that he hadn't studied it or that he didn't have some sort of surgical background, because he most certainly did. And to to what extent, I'm unsure of, which is why I personally am not going to use that to debunk this, because like I said, I did find actual proof. Like I was actually looked through documents and stuff, and he is listed as a surgeon. But to, but to me, yeah. I, there was enough out there saying with how precise this was how cleanly this was done that you would have you would have had to have been mm-hmm. in practice or at least have spent a lot of time in practice and mm-hmm. he just didn't the- so for me that connection really isn't there i understand he had the degree he studied it I just don't think the connection is actually there because he didn't have that practice. Yeah, see, I I actually disagree with you in that point, even though we both agree it's not him. That's actually the only point that could be made, in in my opinion, to be used against him, was because, side note, the man was a genius. 
Oh, yeah. Didn't he have... His IQ was a point Some, higher than yeah, Einstein? Yeah, I mean, whether or not that can be trusted, fine. But he certainly well, was... I'm just saying, but in, that was yeah. out there quite a bit. I saw that on a lot of... Yeah, but he certainly was incredibly intelligent. Right. And, I mean, he was still in medical practice. That's not to say that he didn't keep up with things as well. And the thing of it is, is that he did have the capability of doing it. Let's just put that out there. He did study it. And he had the capability. Was he practicing it every day? No. Is it probable? Probably not. Do you not, know when he was in medical school? Like the dates? Yeah, do you, like just roughly. I can't I can't remember off the top of my head how old he was. I didn't write it down. I'm actually unsure. Because... I have a, a the, sheet here. The yeah. technique was specifically something taught in the 1930s. In the 30s. And we're talking about this is, you know, mid, mid-40s. mid mm-hmm. And I got the impression that he was older than that. Like he would have been in school before uh, the 30s. Because what I want to say, he was born in 1907. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure. So I he would have been that. like, he would have been 30 years old in the you know mid 30s. I find that he was yeah he was born in 1907. Oh, see, I didn't even write it down. Now I remembered. Yeah, born so, in so 1907. So if it was a technique taught in the 30s. I mean, I guess it's possible that it was a technique that was taught all throughout the 30s. So maybe in the early 30s, he would have been in medical school still. So I guess it's a possibility. Yeah. It just I mean, didn't, doesn't line physicians up. Physicians are still going through residencies and trainings up until they're in their 30s But I'm talking too. about being taught the actual like surgical procedure. Mm. I just don't know. I feel like he would have been through medical school before this was a... Well, we don't, we don't know Technique sure. that was taught. Right. But he also was listed as a surgeon in several things. He pra- he did practice surgery at some point. He did. Not where he was living, but yes, I found the document to say that he did do that. But it wasn't for a super extended period of time. No. It, it was for a short time, because that's what he yeah. had gone to school for. But that wasn't what he was doing for quite a while before career, this murder no. took place. Yeah. So so anyway, let to sum that part up, yes, he did have, he did have surgical knowledge and experience to what extent it cannot be 100% proven. So right. we'll leave that part at that, I guess. Yeah. And then, so the next thing is, is that obviously they use a lot of this, his sexual behavior as, I guess, reason to believe that he's this monster. Now, don't get me wrong. Having a sexual relationship with your child, you're a monster in my eyes. Are, does that mean that you murdered someone? No. Does it make you a dirtbag? Yes. But that doesn't mean that you killed somebody. Right. And there's also absolutely no connection to Betty. There's no proof whatsoever that he met her. I do believe that there are some people who say, oh, yeah, we saw her with him. But that's speculation. Okay. Well, then let's... So, yeah. What I found, there was like a hand... Or I think this was all claimed by Steve, that there were a handful of witnesses who claimed that they had first-hand knowledge, that there was some type of a relationship between Hodel and mm-hmm. Short. How verifiable is that stuff? Again, this was so long ago. Mm-hmm. The, these accusations weren't made public until he published this book in, I think, 2003? Yes. So, And that was called Black Dahlia Avenger, A Genius for Murder. Mm-hmm. Just in case anyone wants some light reading before bed. I wouldn't want to read it. <laughs> and I... This is... I want to be very careful with how I'm going to word this next piece because I don't want to be misunderstood in this at all. I think that it is very believable that, in fact, this did happen. So the reason that this has also come into light is that there is a short podcast series that have come out from his great-granddaughters and a TNT miniseries 
that also sprung from this, which is most mostly fiction. Right. Um, is that I Am the Night? I Am the Night. That's what it is. Based off of the book that Fauna wrote. So if we get into this whole family dynamic, I try not to take you guys all over the place, but Tamar, the daughter, the one that he was having the sexual relationship Allegedly. with. Allegedly. Allegedly. He was acquitted, so we have he, to. He was acquitted. And here's the thing. There are three people that testified in that trial that they did, in fact, see him engaging in these well, acts. Okay, so what I read was that they had three witnesses. One of them then refused to testify when they actually got to trial. Did you find that? No, I just saw that there were three. From so, I mean, there's find. still two people, as far as what I yeah. could find, that did say that mm-hmm. at trial, and a third one who had told police that ahead of time. And then the theory is that George Hodel had intimidated mm-hmm. her so that she wouldn't testify at the actual right. trial. But now there also is evidence that Tamar, the daughter, had also accused many other boys in her school and men of the same kind of assault or molestation. Well, and that was... Her mother made that statement. Yes. And And this is an ex-wife of George Hodel, so there's no love lost here. Yes, and some others, I believe, who had said that, yes, this is something that she did. So again, I don't want my words to be taken in the wrong way. I'm not trying to victim blame or say that she was wrong in this instance, but I am saying those are just the things that are out there that can be found. It's stuff that muddies the water. It certainly does. And her behavior afterwards, so Tamar gets pregnant and has a child that year. So it is alleged that this daughter, Fauna is her name, is actually George Hodel's daughter and granddaughter as as the, the product of his incestuous relationship with Tamar. And... The people who are running this podcast, you guys can look it up. I'd rather not say just because my opinions of it all is not super positive, And I'd rather not drag people's names into it that I don't know. Right. We have no problem I, I with talking about podcasts or YouTubers or things that we enjoy yes. and listen to. But we don't want to be. Yeah, but I, I don't know these people. I don't want to whatever. So, but these are Fauna's daughters who are heading this podcast that got into this TNT series and basically I listened to the podcast and it is it's like I think it's six or eight episodes it's really interesting for sure and I know I'm trying to make this short but there's just so much into it Steve Hodell himself says that his sister Tamar also had sex with him saying that he never remembered until Tamar told him and then several more of Tamar's children also say that they were assaulted by either Tamar or George Hodel. And there was a daughter on there. And now this was in her own words. Like I said, I listened to it on this podcast. This is from her mouth. That she also didn't recall that it had happened until Tamar confessed to her and apologized. Again, I am not trying to victim blame or shame or anything like that. But again, it seems odd, I suppose, that these weren't things that these people, several people, had memories of themselves these are things that tamar expressed again it goes with trauma psychology i'm not going to get into all of that these are just the facts right and yeah this is really it's difficult to talk about this type of stuff because we want to make sure that we're laying everything out there mm -hmm. right and because this stuff does muddy the water Mm -hmm. it makes it much less cut and dry this is what happened or this is what didn't happen yeah it's you know and i think that you're doing well with treading lightly you know but just as a as a survivor of sexual assault i think 
it's pretty common to repress those types of things. So right. again, it's odd that they are all remembering these things because yeah, Tamar one, was somehow one present person. or aware of all of them. And she was the one that mentioned it yeah. to them and brings that repressed memory back. I guess yes, I just odd. thought it was odd that it's not just one person. It was multiple people. And they weren't the ones that had ever asked or done this it was tamar going to them right and it's hard to say like again i've never myself been in a position like that and i'm not familiar with the psychology of the trauma that goes behind it so you would know better than i well and but just to say like just to be really clear there too no no experience is going to be identical to any other experience so i also don't want to say here's my experience with sexual assault this is how everyone has experienced it this is how everyone reacts this is how Mm -hmm. You know, I, my experience is not everyone's experience. Mm-hmm. I did not repress that memory. That It was there for me. It has always been very clear, very vivid, ever present. You know, like, I mean, it's just always kind of there in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. It's something that I have to deal with at varying levels every day. Mm-hmm. But it's not uncommon for people to also repress, repress it. it. yeah. So we just, you know, and I, like I said, I think that you were doing a good job with handling it, but just so that it's super clear, just so that anyone who's listening to this understands we're not trying yeah. By to... By no means am I saying these people are right. lying. The thing of it is, is that it's hard to say though, because if these memories, there is a possibility that they are repressed, there is a possibility they are implanted. Right. I'm just saying that both of those options are valid just because of Tamar's behavior before and after Bec- these right, alleged because, things. Because these waters have been muddied. Because yes. she has inserted herself over and over into these types of things. Right. So I just, like I said, I think that you were doing a, a good job with Thanks. it, but I just want to make it very clear. I'm trying. <laughs> that it's not... <laughs> I'm trying. It's not, it's not an not easy thing position, to talk about. But it's not our position that because she had been the one to say something to them that it automatically means it's not true. Mm-hmm. But it's also not our position that just because they have some memory of this after it's mentioned to them, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, these are impressionable people and these are people that are close to her that would believe things that she tells, you know, it's, it's very complicated. It's very convoluted. It's very messy. I think you were doing a good job navigating, but I kind of just wanted to insert that in there. Just, you know, we have different experiences. Careful with that kind of thing. Cause I don't ever want to offend someone who's been, through that especially these people too if if that happened to them i'm not saying that it didn't i am trying to i guess prove the point that tamar is not necessarily reliable right which again if you're getting confused by the names and things we're talking about tamar is george hodell's daughter steve hodell's sister and i'm not i am not convinced that all of what she's saying is reliable just because she apparently allegedly had cried wolf before on multiple people do i personally feel that her father assaulted her yes probably do i feel that her daughter fauna is george hodell's daughter i don't know right because what i also found weird about this is and this just all to seal all of this up with a bow my main main point is this steve hodell and the rest of that family have certainly been out in the in the media gaining a lot of notoriety tv shows book deals things like that i guess in my opinion in my opinion only i feel it's a little exploitative 
Right. Well, okay. But but then, it's not my story to tell. But let's also further that because then it's worth noting then some of the other things that Steve Hodell has put out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has, after accusing his father of the Black Dahlia murder, has then tried to tie his father to the Zodiac killings. And the lipstick murders. Right. So, I mean, he has then tried to insert his father yes. into these other big, high-profile mm-hmm. cases and serial killings. Yes, that. And to make note, Fauna, the alleged, I guess, daughter of George Hodel, mm-hmm. she didn't die until 2017. And I have I scoured the internet. I don't see anywhere where there's physical proof, DNA proof. That she's George Hodel's daughter. So again, I just feel like they're going on very little in regards to that one specific item. And to be fair, George Hodel did not die until 1999. So even though, you know, we don't know where the science was Mm -hmm. at the time, he was alive long enough where there could have been some testing done. Yeah, and he's still And even if he hadn't been... She was alive long enough where familial DNA can be done. So they could have done a paternity test just to see if the father was related to her mother. Yeah. Which could have, you know, lent a little bit more credibility and could have put some evidence behind some of these accusations. And it wasn't done. Yeah. It's just, for me, the Hodel family, the... I'm not saying they are lying. They are telling the truth. I'm I'm not going to go there. What I am saying is that it is difficult for me personally to decipher what is true, what is not, what is for the media, that kind of thing. That's all I want to say on that. I feel like I've already gone way more into touchy subjects than I really wanted to. Well, I think we handled them well. I think if we did not, we're going to, we'll hear about it and we'll be very receptive to that and try to... (laughs) You know, it, it has to be said, though, and again, you can find this anywhere that you look. So, yeah. So going back more to George Hodel as the suspect, to, to try to move away from those touchier mm-hmm. subjects and move into, I guess, a, a different touchy subject. So he was a suspect at the time, and they actually, there was a task force that bugged his residence. Yes. So they actually, they put two microphones in. To listen in. So he was bugged for about six weeks. It was from February 15th to March 27th of 1950. And he was the prime suspect at that point. So they assembled this task force. And I think it was like 18 men that were assigned to this task force. Mm -hmm. And so they have him bugged for six weeks. And they pick up some interesting quotes Generally speaking, there are references to performing abortions, which was a crime at the time, uh, references to paying off law enforcement, and potential involvement in two different deaths. So the Black Dahlia's death, and then the death of Hodel's secretary, Ruth Spaulding. Yeah, that had been ruled a suicide. Yeah, because she had died of a drug overdose. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of quotes. You know, there's actually several out there, but there are two that people kind of focus on when they're looking at George Hodel as supposing. the Black Dahlia Avenger. So he says, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. 
And at another point says, realize there was nothing I could do. Put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket. Get a taxi. Expired 1259. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. So, as we mentioned, the secretary that he's talking about is Ruth Spaulding. Yes. Her death was due to a drug overdose. Mm -hmm. It was ruled uh, a suicide. It was investigated. It was suspicious because Hodel was present when she died and then burned some of her belongings before police arrived. Did he use gasoline? Hmm. That might sway me. Oh, <laughs> now we've done it. If I'm being honest, that would, <laughs> I would be like, oh, well, it was him. So, the one with the gas cans is the one I'm going for. <laughs> and allegedly, there was some evidence found documents that indicated she may have been blackmailing him, that she was going to go to law enforcement about mm -hmm. uh, fraudulent charges that he was doing, like misdiagnosing people intentionally so he could do treatments and be able to charge mm -hmm. them the money for those. Or probably like expose him for the illegal abortions he was doing as well. Right. And I saved that for the second point there because that ties into another Suspect. big rumor. But it oh. ties into another big rumor about Elizabeth Short's death. Yes. Because it's it's out there often. Yeah, that she that had a she, botched abortion. Right, it was a botched abortion, and that was how yeah. she died. This Which, is for people who say that it really wasn't a murder, per se, that she had died getting a back-alley abortion, and then yeah. she was disposed of. Which, if it was a back-alley abortion, why do you then bisect her at the waist? Right. And all of that time that would be spent to then... To leave the body the way that it was left. Not only that, I, and, I feel like the autopsy would have shown that she would have had... She'd either still be It sure would or, have. Yeah. And there was nothing in the autopsy indicating that she was pregnant mm -hmm. at the time or that she had been pregnant. Yeah. At all. Now, again, this is all obviously fiction when we're talking about this show, but probably the most famous instance of this happening is American Horror Story right. Murder House. Which ties in... To, you know, to these theories, these rumors. Yeah, and they show her in Mina Suvari is playing Elizabeth Short. Mm -hmm. She comes in to this physician who performs abortions, and that's how she ends up. And that's up. how she dies. So yeah. there's that theory. But again, no evidence that that's true. Now, and I it's still do... out there. People still make that argument. But there's no... There's nothing supporting that she was ever even pregnant. So Yeah, I certainly probably believe more than any facts that are given about George Hodel that he probably did perform illegal abortions. Well, uh, and it they was tie that really lucrative. Well, they tie that to him because of the STD clinic as well, because right. like you said with gynecology and things like that. Yeah. So I can see the I can see where that line, you know, mm -hmm. how they connect those dots, but there's just Well, which leads into another part of George Hodel is that a lot of people think that the LAPD know it's him. Steve Hodel is claiming that he was number he was the number one suspect. They had enough information to arrest him, but side story, George Hodel fled the country a few times. Like I said, he did. not a great dude, doesn't make him a murderer. But I absolutely think that he probably was doing these abortions. He's incredibly smart. He obviously ran some sort of like gyneco like gynecological practice, STD clinic. Why not? Right. And that also leads to say that the LAPD knew because they were being paid. And, and there's references again, to law enforcement yeah. payoffs on these recordings. And I 
could most which, certainly believe that. I just don't think it's as sinister as everyone else thinks. But it's also interesting because these recordings really did not become public until Steve mm-hmm. Hodel made these accusations. So you have these recordings and these supposedly yeah. suspicious things that he's saying that could tie him to this stuff. Well, which is why a lot of people think it's a cover-up. Right, and it never came out. And I do think... I do think that there is something to there being some type of corruption within the LAPD at the time. There's oh, just sure a there. lot of little things that happen because, and I mean some not so little, but like her mugshot being leaked. Mm-hmm. That could only be done to blame the victim mm-hmm. and try to take the spotlight off of anyone sus- suspected and the actual murderer. And that's how who would have that? Who would have access to that? That This isn't... You know, like now where mugshots are posted online. Yeah, someone had to have sent it. Right. Someone yeah. ha- how did they how did they to give it to have access to it? Well, I mean, it's certainly common for reporters and the police department to have, you know, sources and leaks and Right, sure but they also and when they have mugshots though normally you're talking about when someone's arrested for murder, you'll have mm-hmm. the mugshot. You know, when there's some serious crime that's committed, she was arrested for underage drinking. She was never actually charged with it. She was Mm -hmm. just arrested and booked. So that's why the fingerprints exist. And then she was released. But I do think that there probably weren't enough key players for this to be some huge conspiracy cover up to cover up the most famous case of murder that your department has probably ever seen up to this point in time for you to just completely look the other way. Because you were taking bribes for probably abortions or something like that i mean it just but i don't know at that time how high up did it really have to go you know because if you have one person who's involved in the investigation even just at the detective level they could throw wrenches at things and make things disappear like if they really caught him on tape and not only that you can look at the transcripts online right now Mm -hmm. they're still not no one is saying that he committed this murder still. So clearly there is not enough Officially, evidence. no one's charging him, right. Right. Well, and then, so, then there's also, though, all of the evidence in this case, anything that was collected has just disappeared. It's just, it's not there anymore. It just what? vanished. Yeah. The LAPD would never lose anything. <laughs> Come on. So, you know, little things that tie into the LAPD yeah. somehow being involved in covering something up. Does it necessarily yeah. mean it was George Hodel? No. We said there are a million other possibilities could this have been someone within the LAPD? That's possible. Yes. And there were police officers that were looked at. One of them was from Chicago as well that had a relationship with her. But again, me as a person, I tend to try to have more faith in our police system. I, I, I try to as try. well. There's just a lot of weird things because then on top of the evidence vanishing, they convene a grand jury. Mm-hmm. But the grand jury is convened to review the investigation because people, the public... And the media were being critical of the investigation for not turning anything up Mm -hmm. and moving forward with anything. When they're working with the grand jury, they have five prime suspects. George Hodel is supposedly on that list of five. Mm -hmm. But they don't propose any of those people to actually receive indictments from the grand jury, which is what a grand jury would usually do. Yeah. Is to actually, you know, to indict. They don't submit any of those names for indictments. They just submit those names as prime suspects because they're trying to say, no, we are doing our job. Yeah. And then when the grand jury is critical of them, when the, you know, when the grand jury findings are, are then completed, the grand jury is critical of the LAPD and the job that they're doing on this investigation. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the LAPD starts stepping it up. See, I guess So that I... also, to me, lines up with there being some type of cover-up. Once they're critical, you don't want people looking anymore, so now you're going to do all of this for show. You're going to put more stuff out there. I guess. I don't know. To, to me, again, we differ in opinion here. I, Although I tend to have 
I try to put my faith in the police department and I think generally speaking that they try to do their best with the tools that they're given. We have certainly already discussed some botched investigations. I personally do not consider this a botched investigation. It was the 1940s. You know, look at how well she was cleaned. There is no physical evidence, hardly anything at all. And And like I said, she was a again, to use the term, a a homeless person. She had no roots in California. She went out with a ton of people. She had friends. She went out with a lot of men, all of whom could have been capable of this. And they don't have smartphones. We don't know where they are at all times. You know, they just can't call a bus station and say, hey, can you look up so-and-so for me? Were they here? You know what I mean? It just takes a lot more. But I feel like when we're talking about you know, when we're talking about this time period, when we're t- just when we're looking this far into the past, I feel like we give a lot of passes because we know how advanced the science is now. But they solved murders back then. And they solved murders where bodies were cleaned and where they had very limited evidence. And nothing happened with this. Well, one. they did, but you have to remember that that could be because people need leads. They need tips. Sometimes the tips are given. You know, the killers do something stupid. They mess up. This one didn't. But this, but this killer is supposedly then taunting police and sending them things and sending them mm-hmm. handwritten notes. They find partial prints, but somehow those can't be analyzed because they're tainted when they're being transported to the FBI, mm-hmm. even though we know that the technology exists to send them electronically. There's just a lot here that yeah. wasn't it wasn't handled correctly. And you, I guess you can make the argument that it was that it was just innocent mistakes and because things weren't as well, think about sound the times back then. and then compare it to a case like BTK. Or the Green River Killer and how long it took. And not only that, the Green River Killer killed, what, 38 women? Upwards of that, even more? And how long did it take to catch him? And he was a serial killer. And we're talking, we're in the 2000s now that he was caught. It's like the technology is way advanced. He's killing multiple people, dumping them all in the same place. And it still took them forever to catch him. So think about this is just one murder. Right. And no, I and I understand all of that. I just think that we have to be careful not to be too lenient on them because we're looking yeah. back from a much more advanced technological place. Mm-hmm. But they did solve murders. They've solved difficult cases back then. And this one went absolutely nowhere. And like I said, you can make the argument that it just couldn't go anywhere. But you can also make this argument with some of these very odd coincidences. I do think it's odd. I do think George Hodel is... He's a suspicious dude. He's a a gross dude also. Well, and there's also, there's some evidence out there that he had a relationship with the LAPD and it was a a long-standing relationship when he was in his late teens. Yeah. That he would do like ride-alongs with the LAPD. So he had access Mm -hmm. to, you know, to officers, to the agency, went with them when they like busted doors down and you know and broke up you know sexual crimes drug crimes things like that so with that also being there and then these other coincidences i i do think that there is some credence and some credibility Mm -hmm. to the idea that That the lapd was covering it up Well, to your point i do see that there is a possibility that they may not have they may have looked the other way and maybe not have investigated him thoroughly because they were trying to just Sure. You know, save the you know save their asses, I guess. But that still doesn't mean they would have found anything. I guess. Right. Even if, even if your made, point is true, if then, they yeah. had followed it, 
could they have found something? Or could they and have exonerated the him, point. I guess, as well? Could they have exonerated or yeah. would they've had enough to then convict? Yeah. So there are... So again, um, we come down to an investigation not being handled properly, whether that was innocently done yeah. or if it was intentionally done, wasn't handled properly, and a lead that existed was not followed through. But they also had hundreds of leads. Right. Yeah. I guess because we still have to move on to Mr. Bailey, there are just a few... Dr. Bailey. Tiny, <laughs> a few tiny little points, I guess, that should be made because if we miss them, uh, there are hundreds more points to be made about Mr. Hodel. But trust me, there are books, documents, a whole podcast. Go listen. Oh, you can fall down a rabbit hole online yeah, if you Google George Again, Hodel. we're all over the place with this guy because there's just so much. But there was an artist called Man Ray. Yep. And a lot of people link this fact to him because Man Ray has a piece of art called the Minotaur Mm -hmm. with a woman's top torso. It's not cut. But the photo is only of the way her. that it's the way that it's done and the yes. lighting and everything. It and only shows the torso as if yes. the bottom half doesn't exist. And she is she's nude, so she's bare chested. Um, and her arms are posed. And her arms are posed the same that way. way. Now I heard, and I did try to follow sources on this as well. And they went to go say that George Hodel was a great friend of Man Ray, which has been debunked. He is not. Right. They were trying to say that he was trying to emulate his artwork. I mean, really, you killed a woman to emulate a piece of artwork that is highly unlikely that you ever saw. Right. Because of where he produced his art. Now, I do think it is uncanny, the similarity to the way the body is posed with with that photograph. So I understand, again, I understand the connection being drawn, but like you said... But too much focus is put on it. Upon any type of investigation into it... Mm He didn't know this artist. Could no. he have been a fan of the artist? Sure. And there's a but picture where in did the he archives. See, where yeah. did he see that photo? Because it would have been in like European art magazines. Yeah. In a video I'd seen, they'd shown their source, which was a photograph of a photograph pamphlet. Like I guess maybe one of a booklet of his works, I suppose, that said to George Hodel from Man Ray. Mm. It wasn't like a hey friend, best buddy kind of thing. Here's a sign. No, it was just a very straightforward like, here's a copy of my book. Next. Right. Kind of thing. So they were not friends. But I think the book that they have doesn't, it doesn't include this photo. No, it didn't. Right. Yeah, so that's was, what I'm saying. It was a he, book of this guy's, of this guy's art. Yeah. So the argument is there that he was a fan, but where did he, where would he have had access to this photo yeah. in particular? Because this wasn't yeah. the type of thing that was circulating in the U.S. And how deep was his time. devotion to this art that he would have emulated it by committing a murder? Well, I mean, and that is, again, some more stuff that yeah. could have been possibly and then also, disproven or proven. The only the thing is the posing. But why all of the mutilation and the Glasgow smile and why all of that? And she was unkempt looking. You would think if it were a piece of art, you might do something to her. We hear of a lot of serial killers that dress the body, mm-hmm. like put makeup or do something. Her hair was disheveled. She didn't have any more makeup on because he cleaned her. Like I believe her hair was still damp when they found her. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of thing. Uh, another point is that Steve, Stephen Hodel, has produced receipts of cement bags that his father had purchased for some sort of construction thing. Which, if you'll remember, is one of the only two real pieces of evidence yeah. other than with the body that was found at the scene. Yeah. And they can't prove that... That he bought that bag. Yeah, that that was part of it. But again, it's one of those things where... You, it could be like like we said. I I'm a firm believer that circumstantial evidence, when enough of it is put together, is solid. 
mm-hmm. convict someone. So again, if enough of it is put together, yeah, that could certainly be used against him. But there's you can't prove it. Right. Yeah. Which I mean, and again, could have could there have been? Possibly. We don't know because the investigation wasn't that mm-hmm. thorough. Right. Here. So we have certainly not covered everything that there is to cover with George Hodel. No. But now let's talk about Dr. Walter Bailey. Yeah. Who we both lean more toward being the more viable of these two major suspects. Yeah. And I'm going to throw it out there. I don't, th- and I want to say I don't think he did it. I lean towards him being more viable than George Hodel because I don't believe George Hodel did it. And the only reason I think he should be someone who was investigated is purely because he is the only one that had like an actual connection to the crime scene and the victim. And I'll let you, you go on in. You You want me to lead through this one too? Because I, I kind of oh. started us on Hodel. No, so. you, go, you go ahead. All right, so... Um, I'll interrupt you like now when I feel like it. (laughs) So Walter (laughs) Bailey was a Los Angeles surgeon. He specialized in... And now I'll take over. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) kidding. (laughs) He specialized in mastectomies, which is breast removals, hysterectomies, which is uterus removals, and then also surgical removal of fat. So Um, he was a surgeon. Check check mark against him. (laughs) He had at one point lived one block south of this vacant lot where the body is found. He did not at the time of the murder because in October of 1946, he had moved away because he and his wife had become estranged. Mm -hmm. But she was the one who retained ownership of that property. So there was still a tie to this area. His daughter was friends with... Elizabeth's Virginia. sister, Virginia. And, yes. you know, like I said, she pops up quite a few times because that's who is supposed to be coming to visit when she's last seen at the Biltmore Hotel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now this is the tie to Walter Bailey, mm-hmm. is that Bailey's daughter is friends with Virginia. And yeah. um, I guess now would be a good time to mention Larry Harnish. Sure. So he is a reporter or I guess, yeah, a reporter would be him, right? That would be what we... Is he a reporter or author or... Anyway, he works for the... He wrote. We'll say writer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he has online... He has a really old website that you can visit. And then he has a more current website that you can visit. And it's called The Daily Mirror. It's the LA Daily Mirror. And he has been researching this case for like 30 years. And he is a firm believer that Walter Bailey is the correct suspect Mm -hmm. and is firmly against George Hodel. So again, you can find him on the LA daily mirror and that's probably where you're going to find the most information regarding George Hodel and Walter Bailey and his opinions on these two suspects. So sure. But yeah, he is the one that starts this whole suspect train in regards to Virginia, the sister of Betty and a wedding that occurs. Right. So we should, yeah, to, to be clear, it's not like this is some acquaintance of Virginia. They're close friends because Virginia was the matron of honor at Bailey's daughter's wedding. Attended the or? wedding, yeah. And the way that this is figured out is that this Harnish person, he receives a wedding certificate or like a, was it a, a, a certificate, a license, like I think it was? Like the marriage license? Yeah. And 
because in his original website years ago, it was open to the public that saying, if you have any tips or information at all about the Black Dahlia, send it to me. And people did. And as part of this, he received this marriage certificate, thought nothing of it. And then as he's looking through more evidence, he decides to look it up and realizes the address. Right. And he went, oh. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So then, yeah. So that's how we get the tie to this property. Then we Mm -hmm. find the connection between his daughter and Virginia, Elizabeth's sister. So, and I think it's kind of clear because you said that he really started this. This writer started this. But Mm -hmm. Walter Bailey was never considered by the LAPD. He was not a suspect Mm -hmm. when they were doing this. And he was Um, a little uh, bit older, too. I don't think that he would have been a romantic interest of hers. He was 61 at the time of the murder. I had 67 at the oh, time. Oh, perhaps. He was in his 60s. Yeah, he was in his 60s. But certainly so, more older than the gentleman that she frequently went with. Right. So that that is the argument that a lot of people make is that, oh, he was too old or too weak. Well, I wouldn't say too weak. I just think that he was too old that he would have been someone she was romantically interested in. Well, I, but I think that the weak ties into this next point, which is he died in 1948. And when he died, it was discovered that he had a degenerative brain disease. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where the the weak portion comes in because he did have yeah. he did have this issue and the condition that he had, which I did not write down because I never could have possibly pronounced it correctly, <laughs> was known to cause violent behavior, even from people that were totally you know totally normal, even keeled. Usually, yeah. uh, this particular condition caused violent behavior in them. I did see one reference to him possibly having Alzheimer's, but I couldn't really find anything that really concretely proved that, anything that really, you know, 100% backed that up. But it was mentioned. And I do think that this degenerative brain disease that he did have seems like it had similar symptoms to that. So whether it was Alzheimer's or not, it seemed like he did have some of those dementia symptoms as he got older. You know, so again, so this degenerative brain disease is used as the argument that he would have been too weak. But then the other side of that is the argument that the reason Elizabeth's body was bisected was to make that transport easier. Yes. And even someone who is older and weaker would have been able to move the body if it had been bisected like that. So the behavioral analysis unit of the FBI does profiles. And Mm -hmm. one of the founders of the behavioral analysis unit, John Douglas. Who we all know and love. (laughs) Yeah, if any of you guys are interested in true crime, you most certainly will recognize that name. Right. Think Mindhunter. Right. I was going to say Mindhunter is a phenomenal series, too, if you haven't watched that. Think Ted Bundy. (laughs) Charles Manson. That's, yeah. And Kemper. They talked to Kemper, too, as part of that research. Yeah. John Douglas is actually brought on to do a profile yes. of the Black Dahlia killer. By Larry Harnish. Right, by this writer. So when he does the profile, he says that the perpetrator would have to be someone who is desensitized to blood mm-hmm. and comfortable with a knife. Which would be obviously someone in the medical profession. Right, so that lines up with the medical professional, you know, particularly surgery. Right. Says that... For the dump site to be so public Mm -hmm. that it must have had some type of significance Mm -hmm. to the killer. And so that is where it comes in that this is about a block away from his estranged wife's home. Now, when I heard that, I first was like, yeah, but he doesn't live there anymore. So what connection? And then I thought, oh, you know what, though? That certainly would be important, especially if like 
because that's traumatic for him his estranged wife right and all of that or and this is just me i haven't seen this anywhere but she probably very well walked past it a lot Right. Here you go. I mean, I, I mean, it, like... was, it could have been just as possible that his wife would be the one to stumble upon yeah. Elizabeth's body. Yeah. Then he also mentions that with the Glasgow smile, it indicates that there's personal anger mm-hmm. toward Elizabeth Short. Mm-hmm. And so there's... Which ties back into what I'd mentioned earlier about her embellishing on or lying or that right. kind of thing. So specifically... Go, yeah, back to her relationship with the major, the officer. He's, they, tie, they give him the title of major, okay? Okay. I, okay, whatever. Matthew. <laughs> the one that unfortunately died in a plane accident before their pending nuptials. So she was obviously very distraught about this. But it was noted that she would tell people that, like, she had a son that died, uh, that he, she'd lost her husband. That it was a husband. tragic accident. Yes. She had lost this child. Yes. Right. Tell me, why Why would that anger Dr. Bailey? Oh, well, Dr. Bailey may have been upset by that type of a lie mm-hmm. because he had a son yep. who was struck by a car and killed when he was 11 years old. On what date? So, well, actually, it's the... It's the birthday that ties in because his son had been born on January 13th. Yep. Which is right in the window between Elizabeth Short's disappearance and then murder and the discovery of the body. Right. So that, you know, he's kind of checking all of these boxes on this profile. Right. Yeah. He has a he has some type of significance with this dump site. Yeah. And by no means are we blaming like. Elizabeth, again, she really was so young. She's devastated, you know. And also, if she wanted attention, it might not be, like, the most moral thing to do to lie about something like that. But we won't, you know. Well, we're not passing judgment on her. No. It, but it does, you know, these things just kind of check the boxes. Yeah. So he has, there's a significance to him with this dump site. He would have a personal anger because he was so devastated by the death of his son. Yeah. Yeah. It's right about the time that that happened. And when you have dementia, when you're having those types of symptoms, those types of things weigh much heavier on you because you don't have that short-term memory. Mm-hmm. Those long-term memories are really what's, you know, kind of front and center for you. So to be dealing with the anniversary of the death of his son, you know, and then to have this woman telling this story. And again, he checks off. The desensitization to blood, mm-hmm. being comfortable with a knife. He had a lot of experience practicing surgery. Yeah. So the precision that this is done with and the technique that was used. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So again, familiarity with the dump site. He certainly had some sort of mental affliction of some kind. He had the surgical background and he had an actual tie to the victim. Right. Which is something we've only had with a couple of other people and they were cleared. Right. So Yeah, and that and that is also he has no alibi for that night. Right. And there's also some rumors that Although circulate. he wasn't questioned about it. Right. So that can't be confirmed. But there's no like clear cut thing that rules him out. We don't out. have anything that says this is where he was, so we right, he couldn't right, have done right, right. it. Not that he didn't have an alibi, but that we can't find one. We don't have an alibi on record because he wasn't right. really looked into and he died. A year later. About a year later. So then there are some other rumors that circulate and it kind of ties into the the rumor that this had something to do with her receiving an abortion because with Dr. Bailey, there are also some allegations that he performed abortions, abortions yeah. at the time. And 
One of the things that they try to use to back this up, and there's nothing supporting it past this, mm-hmm. is when he died, he left everything to his mistress. Yeah. And his mistress claimed that he had a terrible secret yeah. that she was keeping for Which him. Which the wife felt... The what, right. Yeah, was... The estranged wife felt that it was about him performing those abortions, which, again, right. was a crime yeah. at the time. And I know it seems like the two doctors we've talked about are like, they also, you know, dabble in back alley kind of abortions. Just to kind of make the setting, because I know it seems too coincidental, but we're talking about the 1940s in LA, and women who are aspiring actresses cannot be pregnant. Absolutely. And, and to it's be, illegal, so it's incredibly And to be pregnant lucrative. out of wedlock at that time. Yeah. yeah as, and I hate even using that term, but at that time. Oh, for sure. And like, so again, when you have all of these, I'm sure famous people as well, being one of those kinds of physicians is incredibly lucrative right and as a surgeon this is someone who would have been able to do something like that yeah so i don't think it's out of the question for any of these physicians to have been doing that again a very lucrative option for them and it could have been true about both of them although neither one of us believes that it's tied at all to why elizabeth short is dead yeah i think it's probably true for both of them i wouldn't question it it could be true, could not. I totally believe it. Right. But I don't think that it ties into the murder. Correct. So is there anything else you'd like to talk about with Dr. Oh, God, Bailey in particular? No. I don't want to talk about anything else in particular. I did forget a fact on Steve Hodell, but I guess that, Go ahead. that ship has sailed. Go ahead. No, we'll, we'll do a callback. Okay. So one more thing, just on his credibility. So there is an eBay thing. He has... <laughs> Listen, okay, so I actually... This segment is not sponsored by eBay. He claims that he also had pictures, like, given to him or or that he found these pictures that prove that his father knew the Black Dahlia. He purchased those photos on eBay for $7,000 from the evidence that I found. We have receipts? I have the screenshot of it. Hmm. Or the link to it. Yeah. I did not stumble upon that. This is not 100% confirmed. Nothing in this case is. I think that's why we're both so frustrated. Based on my research that I found, I'm looking at the thing here. Yeah. So again, that's just another shot to his credibility. I'm not, again, going back to the whole George Hodel thing and the Steve Hodel thing, I'm not saying that for certain that these things are lies. Or that he's even intentionally lying. However, I do want to show that before anybody reads his book or watches interviews and go, wow, this guy's really believable and it's it's his own father. Like, why would he lie? Well, that's a big just, selling point. Yeah, just do your own research. Because I wouldn't necessarily think that everything he says is credible. I don't know that I want to recommend that anyone do their own research into Ugh. this case because <laughs> it will drive you insane. Yeah. Well, don't take our word for anything either. <laughs> We're trying, guys, but... <laughs> So I think we have, uh, well, I guess, I think we kind of touched on this already, but I guess if we were sitting in the deliberation room Mm -hmm. on a jury with a case against either one of these men, I don't think either one of us would be voting to convict either one. No, I would not. There's just not enough there there. No. And in fact, I don't feel strongly about any of them. Right, I, I don't feel, feel like it's super strongly about either one in either direction, though, because you feel a little bit I more I do feel strongly, strongly that George Hodel didn't do it. Right, yes. but I don't necessarily feel so strongly that he didn't. Yeah, I feel strongly that he did not, but I honestly have yet to find a suspect in my research, those that we named this evening and those that I've looked into on my own. I haven't found any that really, I went, oh, wow, why isn't this guy 
behind bars. Nope, nothing so, like that. So, sorry to break the bad news to you if you listen to this podcast hoping that we were going to solve the Black Dahlia murder. Maybe tonight. we did. We don't want to tell you. Hmm. Yeah, I have it in my notes who did it. Oh. I'll tell you about it after. Tell me later when you I know exactly. Yeah, I knew exactly <laughs> who did it. Um, the whole time. So, that's another episode of That's another allegedly. two and a half hour episode of Allegedly, guys. Oh, yeah. This is, yeah, this is a long one. But I think this one deserved it. I think for we sure. spent quite a bit of time talking about Elizabeth Short and she deserves for that to be happening too because like you said then and now Mm -hmm. then it was just a bunch of negative stuff that came out about her Mm -hmm. now really nothing is talked about with her and the focus is on George Hodel Mm -hmm. and so I think it was appropriate that we took that time to give her that time or oh it was a girl that was cut in half right yeah so remember that actress that was cut in half and that's (laughs) not how she should be remembered she was a a fun-loving girl she had a long life ahead of her and it was taken away from her by someone who we probably will never know. Maybe it's, it was Jack the Ripper. Oh, it could be. I know who that is as well. You and I will compare notes. Okay. You tell me who the Black Dahlia murderer was and I'll tell you who Jack the Ripper And then when we give each other the same name, we'll have solved both. Yeah. And tied them together. Yeah. We'll have done much better than Steve Hodell at tying <laughs> the murder of the Black Dahlia to a serial killing spree. Yeah. So uh, remember to rate, review, subscribe. All the things. Follow us on our socials at allegedly underscore pod on Instagram and Twitter at that allegedly podcast on Facebook and email us at that allegedly podcast at gmail.com. If there's some stuff that you know about this one that we didn't talk about. Because there's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Email us about it. We may have seen it as well and just didn't include it. But let us know if you think that we should have included something. Yeah. And also tell us what tell us what you think of. George Hodel. I'm interested to see what the general consensus Yeah, do you agree is. with us that it was Walter Bailey over George Hodel? Like, that he's mm-hmm. the more viable suspect? Or do you think... Did yeah. we sell you on George Hodel, even though we yeah, did not believe did not that, that was... <laughs> so, I guess we will we'll see you later. talk at you again next week. My cats are both in this microphone. It's time to go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Before we start getting a ton of meowing for absolutely no reason. So... All right. All right. Bye. Bye, guys.